cry havoc and let's slip the dogs of war. Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast, and apparently also every Loudest. once in a while whenever. <laughs> <laughs> and I threw out my throat doing that. So, um... <laughs> it's a cautionary tale. Yeah, um... learn an important lesson. Um, but yes, hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast. And sometimes apparently dropping randomly in the middle of the week when we feel like we want to talk about something that isn't necessarily on the list and is outside the remit, but it's okay because we're going to take a week off in the future. So yes, this week we are talking about Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, and joining me for this discussion, as ever, is my co-host Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? I am constant as the Northern Star. <laughs> yes! Thank you. I'm sad, but also glad. But um, that we had Christopher Plummer for as long as we did, uh, which and there there can never be enough Christopher Plummer, and that, like we, I'm I'm not somebody who I guess uh, uh, grieves um, uh, c- celebrities or people I don't know, but um, I am be, be, because it kind of assumes some sort of a relationship with yeah. them that you don't really have but i but i i i i do i do grieve that the, the, that we won't get to see any new christopher Plummer movies um i guess and 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 i i, I i'm glad that we have the chance together to um to celebrate one of his movies that we both enjoy that we both love yes um, and again christopher Plummer, phenomenal uh, presence again one of those actors that i i kind of always assumed had been around i think when he won his oscar he quipped that she was only two years older than he was so it was the perfect relationship in hollywood um but also the fact that uh <laughs> but the fact that he's he's an actor who has been obviously institutional and thus hugely influential and you you cut through his career and you see any number of classics i mean going back to things like say the sound of music but even more recently like he was in knives out which we talked about uh back with alex yeah. and kind of um and luke early last year like a constant presence and like a consummate professional and we're obviously as you've guessed from the title of the podcast we're going to be talking about star trek 6 and we'll talk maybe about why we're talking about star trek 6 uh in in a moment but just to kind of just assess Plummer as as an actor as a hugely influential force um and as a professional because he was always he was seldom a headliner i know that he did eventually obviously win an oscar for his work on beginners and people do think of him as von trapp from the sound of music but when I think of Plummer, I think of him in supporting turns. I think of him playing like Mike Wallace in The Insider. I think of him like popping up in A Beautiful Mind, which is another 250 movie. I think of him popping up in, say, Up, um, you know, which again, another 250 movie, but where he's not necessarily the main attraction. Ed Asner is there. I think of him stepping in for, you know, in all the money in the world with the Kevin Spacey situation, where like Ridley Scott reshot all of the footage and integrated it into the movie with Plummer in the space of two weeks, which is a consummate profession. I think of the interviews that I've read with him where he comes across remarkably well um, and always one of the things that I really liked about Plummer when he came come across in interviews is A, he was modest, uh, which I kind of like in an actor of that stature when you know, you're know you somebody who could be described as an institution to be modest is to be quite something but also somebody who didn't necessarily suffer fools with a great deal of patience uh, where like reviewers or kind of interviewers would say nice things about him and his response would be, oh come now or oh come on, uh, which I kind of appreciate when you get an actor kind of put back i think you know was it the insider doing like the press tour for the oscar circuit for the insider and you know an, an interviewer telling him that they they forgot they weren't looking at mike wallace on screen and apparently Plummer rolling his eyes when he got that compliment um and just kind of like look 
which is something that I do genuinely admire. But yeah, he, he'd been around forever. And I kind of, again, with actors that you kind of grow up with, it, it's odd because you assume that they will always be around. Like, I I know he was old and I know he reached the age of 91 and, and the circumstances of his death are, seem particularly tragic because it was a fall. It wasn't an illness or it wasn't a, a long-term degeneration. The, the sense that, you know, he could have been doing this for another 15 years um, and still making movies and still making movies where... He was a presence. Like, again, we talk about Knives Out where he plays Harlan Thromby, who is the victim uh, in the movie, but he hangs over that movie. Like, it's not a small cameo. It's a presence. And even when he's not on screen, you are thinking about him. And when he is on screen... Well, it's he's his right. house. Yeah. And the... the um, it, 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 it's not that the house is a character. It's that the house is... <laughs> him yes you know it's it's it and it's kind of the, the the i suppose we're not talking about knives out as you say we'll get to why we're talking about star trek six but yeah in 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 that the reason one of the reason knives out works so well is because he imbues that house with his character and when you're kind of looking at the house you imagine this kind of uh, um a great man or great character who is filled as I guess with 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 all of that character, with parts of himself, um, and has had so much character yeah. that he can do that. You know that he just kind of has that to spare, and it makes sense. Like it, it, it with 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 like a lesser performance, um, it could feel unearned. Yeah, you know. Um, but again, because Plummer was who he was, and again, huge, huge swathe of kind of like history, any number of like hugely influential films, the ones that we mentioned, but even you know, like say, you know, 12 Monkeys, for example, is a film that he was in that was hugely influential. He was in David Fincher's The Girl with the Dragon Dead 2, which I think Alex joked was like, but what if Knives Out wasn't a comedy? Um, but, you know, all these kind of <laughs> Malcolm X um, with Spike Lee, he's worked with many of the great directors and uh, kind of like many hugely influential films. And I think I, like... I, I'm always trying to see Malcolm X and it's a movie for some reason that's difficult to find or difficult to watch. It's also three um, hours and a half long, um, which is which is a lot. I've been meaning to rewatch it because since like Spike Lee's obviously come back into prominence with like Black Klansman and with The Five Bloods. And, you know, we haven't had a chance to talk about those in the podcast because they don't make the list for reasons that would be a separate podcast onto themselves, I suspect. But Malcolm X has been one I've been wanting to rewatch because I remember watching it as a teen and loving it. We can definitely tie it back. <laughs> Somehow. Have those reasons anything to do with space racism? <laughs> Into what we're going to be discussing tonight. Yes, yes, we are. We're talking about the undiscovered country. Because again, like the the huge and varied career that, you know, Plumbers had. And I reckon everybody has their favorite Christopher Plummer movie and the movie that they think of when they think of Christopher Plummer. And for myself and for Andrew... Well, I, I presume I'm speaking for Andrew, but for me, it was Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. In fact, that was when we text, when I text you to let you know the plumber died, which is, again, that thing, you know, we talk about, like, the, the weird relationship that some people have to celebrities, and, and the kind of, like, it's not something I would normally do. I think I might have texted you when David Bowie died, because Bowie meant a lot to me personally. I think I sent you a... a, a I felt that, like, because Bowie was very important to you, that you would need kind of like a sympathy card. I think Ashley, uh, you reached uh, out to me, uh, gave, yeah, <laughs> with that, and then I discovered, oh no, of course, like Darren is a sane person. <laughs> he, 
he realizes that this isn't his loss. <laughs> yeah. This is his is David Bowie's family's loss, loss yeah. or, kind or of, the world's um, loss or whatever. It's not something that's or the world's loss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that that's um, kind of. I think you 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 had a sense of perspective that I didn't <laughs> expect you would. I, thank you in that, in that circumstance. Um, but yeah, no, because because I I did like I I text you about it because we both love the Undiscovered Country. I think you've described it as your favorite Star Trek movie. Is that fair? I, it it definitely is, um, and it, it's 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 um, it's a great performance. I think what, 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 watching it this time, I don't know, is it because of his passing? But I suppose to some extent, I had always felt that uh, Christopher Plummer was a a strong reason why the movie was so great. Yeah, um, and I don't know, is it out of kind of reverence to to um or out of respect to him that 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 I feel like that he may be the best part about um the the movie or possibly watching this with another person who hasn't seen the movie before made me kind of question is this such a great movie <laughs> but i mean that's the luxury of having our own this podcast is we can occasionally just say screw the actual rule and format of the podcast that we have we want to talk about this let's talk about this do you know our listeners you can have your own podcast too <laughs> if you want to yeah it's a democratic medium um but but no like i, I think you're actually like that's the thing about plumber and and it's interesting that you mentioned watching it this time and watching it for plumber um and again i don't know if people haven't seen star trek 6 i i don't know if we're going to do the format will we do the format that we normally do well you have a lot of fans of you darren <laughs> and one of the things that you um do quite a lot of is star trek criticism yeah so i'd imagine when 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 some of your fans may have found out that you were like uh, in the twitter sphere that you had a like a cautiously undisclosed uh, podcast project <laughs> um, kind of coming up they 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 might have hoped that it had something to do with star trek yeah and I'd, I'd say that they've probably been feeling unfulfilled for, <laughs> for the past the four years. years. Yeah. <laughs> How long is it? Four anyway, and a half. Yeah. They, yeah. Um, and now finally, they're 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 going to get what they what they've hoped for all along, which is a um, an episode of you t- uh, talking about Star Trek and me annoyingly interrupting. <laughs> well, no. Well, okay. Let's let's talk about Chang and let's talk about Plummer because again re-watching the movie and kind of coming back to it, I think what really struck me this time, because I was watching it again with the critical eye of, of talking to podcasts and talking about it on a podcast, specifically in the context of Plummer, is that the character of Chang, who is, is the role played by Plummer in the film, he, the, Chang occupies a huge amount of space in the movie and when I think about the movie and when I think about what the movie is and when I think about like who the primary antagonist of the movie is and re-watching it what I found interesting is that Chang doesn't actually serve that much of a narrative function as the villain of the piece um, in terms of plot he's there as a kind of like a scarecrow antagonist but he's not necessarily the inverted commas real villain of the film the climactic sequence of the movie does involve him but then that's wrapped up and we get down to an actual action beat and the actual end of the movie and chang is nowhere to be seen and i think that it's a testament to plumber like as an actor and as a performer that when i think of star trek 6 despite the fact that you know chang isn't 
really the big bad guy. He isn't really, he's just one of a set of them, arguably. He's a co-conspirator, to put it frankly, you know, to, without getting too spoiler or too specifically. It's Chang that I think of uh, when I think of Star Trek VI. And watching Plummer's performance, it is marvellous. Apparently Plummer had to be convinced to take the role. He was obviously uh, reluctant to do so. As a fellow Canadian, he'd done some work with Shatner. I think they'd done some work on kind of um, radio plays together. And one of the things that I really admire about Plummer's performance, and it's very similar to I would argue Ricardo Montalban's performance as Khan in Star Trek II, is that this is an actor who looks at the show that they're coming into or the franchise they're coming into. And in particular, they look at the actor that they're going to be playing against. And that's William Shatner. And that's his William Shatner at a point where he has codified how he plays Kirk uh, to the point. And, you know, you joke about Shatner's Kirk and Kirk says, talks with a stutter and dramatic enunciation. Um, and that sort of performance style that Shatner has that is very theatrical, very stagey, and very forceful, which emerged, I would argue, during the second and third seasons of the original show when he was fighting for space with Nimoy, when Shatner was worried that people were looking at Nimoy as the star of Star Trek, and he needed to find a way to get the audience's eye back on him and never looked back. But I think that with Plummer's performance in The Undiscovered Country, you see... Successfully. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, but like with Plum- I guess we'll get into that later on we will we will indeed yeah. um, in the context of Star Trek 6 but like with Plummer's performance here I see Plummer going toe to toe with Shatner I see him realizing that Shatner is going to choose the scenery at any given opportunity mm. and the only way that you will hold your ground against Shatner is to compete on his level. So it's it's this wonderful stagey performance. It's not especially subtle. He quotes Shakespeare. There's a moment at the climax where he spins around in a chair laughing like a maniac while talking about how the bells of the chimes of midnight are calling um, and like randomly quoting Julius Caesar. It's amazing. It reminds me a bit of the, kind of obviously very different kind of, but the Christopher Lee versus Roger Moore. Oh yeah, showdown <laughs> in, in. In The Man with the Golden Gun. Yeah. But the in 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 terms of kind of it, it's 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 maybe not as big a performance but it, it it's 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 kind of um it needs to match yeah. what kind of Roger Moore is it's <laughs> laying down doing which which yeah yeah with 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 the very you know Roger Moore um kind of all um I mean, we will talk about eyebrows. Yeah, uh, but I mean, I mean... <laughs> when we're talking about this movie, not 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 in relation to Shatner. But, um, but yeah. yeah, but I mean, like even with Plummer... in terms of come, come, Mr. Yeah. Bond. <laughs> but but even you enjoy killing <laughs> as much as I do. As, as much as I do. Yeah, uh, but where uh, where it's where you need to steal the show, kind of. Yeah. Um, and particularly on a, on a show like this, where it's a big farewell, it's a big celebration of them, you need to hold your ground. Like, there's a moment, and again, it, it spoilers out of context if you haven't seen the movie, but like where Kirk is on trial and Chang is the prosecutor, and he we does. Should, we should probably we should uh, sorry, sorry, um we 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 should we, I guess I guess we were so excited. Yeah, we didn't do the format. Um, for anybody who hasn't, I guess, seen the movie. Yes. Um. See the movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. Well, and, since since this is the two fifty, let let's do the boring two fifty stuff. All right. So and well, 
<laughs> you've, you've done it now. You've invoked it now, Andrew. Have I? You have. You, you've summoned um, it down. I, I was just ready to freewheel there, but you were like, no, 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 no. We should impose structure. And I thank you for I was that, just, Andrew. <laughs> I was going to say, like, we'll, we'll just kind of, like, for anybody who hasn't seen the movie, kind of, if, you, if, if you want to see it, you should. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, stop the podcast and watch it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's too late now. Well, no, okay. Well, let, let's. No, I don't want to. I don't want to damn it, but with by because it seemed it, it, like if I say that it's not one of the two hundred and fifty best movies of all time, it, it see, seem seems like a criticism. It's definitely on my list. Yeah. Of the top two hundred fifty movies, like I, I, I want, I own this movie. <laughs> No, I didn't have to go looking for it. It was in my room. Oh. I had a physical copy of this. I guess that's that, that would be my yeah. kind of answer to those three questions. What about yourself, Darren? Yeah, um, I was just going to make the, the observation in terms of like the 250 and the 250's relationship with Star Trek movies. There have been a total of five uh, Star Trek movies to have made the 250 um, in the years since its inception. Do you want to take a guess and guess which of the five 13 Star Trek movies have made the list? Since its inception. Since its inception back in 1996. Okay. Um, I think, um, I think First Contact. Yes. First Contact right. peaked Rats at six. Can? First Contact was the sixth highest ranked movie of all time on its release. I think that makes perfect sense because I think people who had the internet <laughs> in 1997 were also watching First Contact. And thinking it was the best thing ever. <laughs> and thinking it was the best thing ever. I remember having a, another nerdy friend of mine in, in Balana and I left Balana and we would uh, communicate over like kind of um, Hotmail or MSN Messenger. And I remember him sending a uh, special um, first contact e-card. <laughs> Those were the um, days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so first contact um, is, is one of five, and I think you were going to say... Wrath of Khan? Yep, yeah, that, that has been in there as well. It was in at the very start. So it dropped off. How right? many do I have to get? Uh, five? So you've got five. So you've got two of five. So you've got... What are Wrath the rating of, three? Wrath of Khan and first contact. I think um, the journey home, the fourth one was in there. Nope. Was it not? Nope. Oh, how many how many wrong answers can I give? <laughs> okay, for every, for every wrong answer. You can play at home. Yeah, for every wrong um, answer, I will give you a right answer. So the right answer I'm going to okay, give you for that no. one is... <laughs> generations. Yes, Generations also made the list. Yes, Generations okay. was in very briefly, 104. So you've got two more to go. And I would, I would have expected these would be the easiest ones for you to guess when you think about the 250 and you think about what's popular on the 250 and you think about when it was popular on the 250. Right, the J.J. Abrams yes. Star Trek. Yes, the two J.J. Right. Abrams Star Treks have made it in. So that's the five there. Yep. So Star okay. Trek Six, Star Trek Six never actually made it in, which is which is interesting. And yes, for myself, this would definitely be on my own personal two fifty. I think it is my favorite Star Trek movie. It is either that or First Contact, uh, depending on the day that you ask me. Um, and they are my two favorite Star Trek movies. And I think this is perhaps the most Star Trek of Star Trek movies, if that makes sense. The one that most embodies what I think of when I think about the franchise. Um, you know, when I think about what I like about the franchise. And, and I think as well. It's a fun. It, it's an interesting Star Trek movie because it's not only does it say what the franchise kind of wants to say, kind of at its best, but it also talks. It, it also says something about the franchise itself. Yes. Yeah. It... <laughs> which, which is kind of interesting too. Yeah. Um... Um, and 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 it's still, I think, relevant these days. 
and and I, and I, I guess um, I'll be, I know you'll have a lot to say about that. And I'm not putting you under any pressure because <laughs> I know you do have a lot of things to say. <laughs> I always have a lot of things to say, Andrew. And yes, I would recommend if you haven't seen Star Trek 6 to, to watch it. I mean, even if you're not a huge Star Trek fan, I think it's broad enough and accessible enough. And it has it's enough. It's very watchable, I think, for, for people who don't like Star Trek. Yeah. Um, in large part because, you know, again, not to get too specific about the things that it says about the franchise, but some of those things are things that are things that people outside the franchise might say about it, if that makes sense, um, which I think is interesting. Yeah, it has a kind of, it has this sort of Star Trek tropes. It has a certain amount of action, but it, it's it's not an, it's not an action film, yeah. I guess. Where it, it, but, but at the same time, it's not Star Trek 1 either. Yeah. Uh, sorry, Star Trek the Motion Picture. Or Star Trek the Motion trying... Less Picture was the uh, <laughs> fans used to call it at the time. And I mean I say that with a great deal of affection for it, but Yeah, it, I mean they were they were they were kind of it was after Star Wars, I guess, that they made that. Yeah. And they were thinking kind of like <laughs> we're we're gonna clean up here. But let's let's maybe since Star Trek isn't Star Wars Let's 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 do a kind of a base odyssey, yeah, <laughs> sort of a a, a a a feel to it. We, and 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 I think like that's a kind of a valid choice. Yeah. Um, it does feel very of its time. Yeah. I guess. And this this the, the, the sorry. I guess we'll get into kind of uh, parts of this movie that were evergreen and parts that are very that specific in the context of yeah. its 1991 release and the 25th anniversary of the franchise. So yes, if you haven't seen it, I would recommend that you watch it. I do think it's worth your time. With that in mind, then we'll segue neatly into the spoiler zone. Spoiler zone. <laughs> I don't know. I can't, I can't do an impression of Christopher Plummer. He d- does have a great voice in a movie full of people with great voices. It really does. Well, I mean, and like, particularly like in the context of like the climax of the movie. Actually, is him. Sorry. It's, it's, I, I should qualify that. Um, <laughs> J, J, as 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 much as I like the performances of like James Doohan <laughs> and um, is it Walter Walter Koenig, uh, Koenig, Koenig, Koenig? Yeah. Koenig who yeah. who, who Chekhov and who plays Chekhov. They kind of um, did a silly voice for a television show <laughs> like a long for, time for ago. For 25 years. <laughs> and are now kind of stuck with it, you know. And it becomes a kind of a running joke uh, in like um, The Journey Home. <laughs> and um, I guess with, with ve- 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 Wessels. Wessels. We're looking for nuclear yeah. Wessels. Um, yeah, yeah. And the, but yeah, did. <laughs> I feel I feel kind of a certain amount of sorrow for them kind of to to like while while Nimoy gets to kind of um be stoic. Um yeah, he's it, it, it it's like it, it's it he is a great kind of a comic persona, Spock, but it also has so much gravitas. Yeah. And it's it's it it's a difficult it's a very difficult role. Well, I mean, there's a reason that Spock was the breakout character. Like, Spock was the character who inspired the first fan fiction, fan magazine, Spock and Nalia. He became a countercultural icon. He was a sex symbol. Like, you, like we joked earlier about, like, Shatner developing the Shatner performance, like, to, to combat Nimoy. But you understand why in context, because Nimoy was the face of Star Trek. 
Like, Spock was the character who became the show's ambassador. Well, like, I don't... Um, I understand it, too. <laughs> I, I, I think for, for, for people writing Star Trek fan fiction, as much as the show and as much as Shatner himself want to kind of portray him as this as this great kind of Lothario or, or um, fantastic lover um, across the universe. Um, you know that he wouldn't be. <laughs> <laughs> you, 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 you feel like with, with, with Spock. Anyway, sorry, Darren, you, you, you've read all of the Spock fan fiction, so you can probably no, speak more to that. I was actually going to remark on, like you mentioned, like the motion picture earlier, the motion picture uh, novelization, which was written by Gene Roddenberry. Um, and it's like a window into Gene Roddenberry's mind's eye in 1979 is a fascinating read because it lets you know how he saw Kirk. And like, again, sorry, this is going to be tangent upon tangent as we talk about Star Trek stuff. But like the moment in, if you remember the motion picture, the character of Elia um, is replaced by a machine, a probe that empties her out from the inside and sends her back to the ship to learn about the humans who have come into Viger. Uh, Viger. Um, and basically her old lover, Decker, who is the first officer and Kirk is feeling very insecure about because he's the young up and coming new Kirk. It's basically he's Elia's former lover and Kirk in the novel has an entire chapter it's something to behold where kirk is like look i've done this before i know how you break a machine or robot circuitry when it's in the form of a beautiful woman you need to seduce it you need to make it fall in love you need to have sex with it now decker he's a young man and he already has a pre-existing romantic relationship with her that he could exploit but on the other hand i don't know that he's as good or as smooth a lover as i am so I have to make a tough decision as a captain. Do you know, it's funny. Um, I've been reading a lot of, of John le Carre, or rather I've been listening to a lot of it on my, on my phone. We'll, we'll, we'll have the specific titles, <laughs> I guess, in the recommendation yeah. section. John le Carre has this trope, and it's a familiar trope in kind of um, fiction written by men, yeah. where they really fetishize, like, how very virile yeah they're 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 protagonists are and it's like it's always like you know michael jason who i think you'll know from um yes uh, doctor who yes he played the uh yeah yeah, the valiard or whatever yep yes yeah where uh he's like um (laughs) where he's like Jerry Westerby ripped her clothes off, (laughs) like made passionate love to her like she had never been made before. Sure, he was a bit pudgy, but (laughs) it's kind of like it's definitely something to do with like these writers. It's like I think it's kind of them. Well, I don't know. Sorry, that uh, we <laughs> <laughs> that old Oscar Wilde quote where everybody's first novel is themselves as Lucifer or apparently a Lothario. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where well, that was definitely yeah. It's 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 interesting though how how that gets kind of reproduced. <laughs> yeah. It's almost as common as the um, university professor, <laughs> yeah. you know, is having an affair with one of their students. Uh, uh, gone girl, I love that. Um, you're, you're an English professor. <laughs> I thought you were a novelist. Um, didn't like cliches. But yes, to bring us back to, to Star Trek Six, actually, and again, we, mentioning like Nimoy and, and Shatner is kind of an interesting avenue into this because 
for those who are familiar with the Star Trek franchise, it was at something of a crossroads in 1991. The original cast of the original show had, as mentioned, transitioned into the big screen with the motion picture in 1979. That had failed to catch audience attention. Um, it had performed well, but it hadn't performed brilliantly. And the critical reviews had been lukewarm at best. So the franchise was basically given what happened with sequels back in those days, which was the budget was cut dramatically. Um, there was a complete change of creative personnel. Gene Roddenberry was booted out and Nicholas Meyer was brought in and he did The Wrath of Khan, which basically saved the uh, movie franchise as it was. I have mixed feelings about The Wrath of Khan, but generally speaking, the consensus is that it is the best Star Trek film. We don't have time to get into that right now. But it did it did reinvigorate the franchise, and you ended up with The Search for Spock, and then you ended up with The Voyage Home. And The Voyage Home was a colossal success, both in critical terms and commercial terms. And again, there's a big discussion to be had about, like, I think the moment that Star Trek ran into trouble was the moment the people running Star Trek forgot that the voyage home was a bigger hit than the wrath of khan um i think that like once star trek started focusing on reproducing the wrath of khan over and over again that was the moment at which the franchise began alienating like general audiences and began appealing to a fan base and became insular and small because the voyage home broke out in a massive way and it inspired paramount to do two things first of all it commissioned another film obviously star trek 5 and we'll come to that in a second but it also commissioned a spin-off tv show uh the mo the next generation because obviously the cast of the original series were getting more expensive as it was going on and paramount were worried that the franchise wasn't not just more expensive <laughs> <laughs> that was definitely part of it with getting like i mean the it's it's a kind of a it's a bit of a hack joke but getting getting very very old yeah um, and very tired like there, there there is a moment in this where it's like and i'm sure i'm sure back in the cinemas it wasn't so much of an issue maybe but there is a moment where Walt it is like a close up on Walter Koenig and he's like caked with makeup <laughs> and he's supposed to be the young guy. Yeah, yeah he was the he was the he was the guy introduced in the second season to appeal to monkeys fans, you know? He was the hip exactly. young boy. Like <laughs> I love though how Koenig is uh Russian in the like obviously like we don't have enough time to go into like all the stuff we'd like to talk about yeah. but but i love that he's kind of russian at a time uh, in the original series where where there was so much kind of hysteria about the soviets and the the the, the kind of hopefulness about that yeah um that you'd have a but, russian on the bridge with with a black woman and with with a with a Asian American, I think Sulu is meant to be Japanese despite having a Korean name. I think, but again, an, an Asian on the bridge. Is... Yeah, and yeah, and, and it's it's. I should mention, by the way, that George Takei uh, looks incredible in this and still looks incredible <laughs> in real life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It it, it does. The, the, it doesn't doesn't um, kind of um, apply uh, as much to him as it him. does to the but rest. Yeah. Of us. I I imagine that when they're making a a movie and they're they're going to be like um, so then we'll have like an action sequence where <laughs> where where James doing <laughs> up the stairs <laughs> turns around and gets hit by a pipe on the head um, as happened in Star Trek Five 
Yeah, yeah. But they, I think he pro- he was probably annoyed enough about Star Trek V that he was able to wrangle. Yeah. Like, um, I'm I'm going to um, I'm going to bound up the stairs, and you won't see it. <laughs> it won't <laughs> make the be moving very fast. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So like a like like a lynx or a panther. <laughs> so you had Star Trek Star Trek: The Next Generation happening on television, and initially, you know, people fans were skeptical of it, but around about eighty nine and ninety, it really clicked into place with the best of both worlds which was a tv phenomenon one of the best cliffhangers ever and the point at which like the next generation became star trek to a generation at the same time the cast of the original series uh things became a bit tense um and the property basically that fell through the floor um as a result leonard nimoy had been uncomfortable with the role of spock um for a while i think one of his books was titled i am not spock now admittedly one of his other books is titled i am spock um and as the, as the simpsons jokes his follow-up was i am also scotty but nimoy had basically <laughs> nimoy had basically kind of like quit he'd asked to be written out in the wrath of khan so he was killed off and then he came back in star trek 3 but he directed it and he wrote the story of it and then he came back for star trek 4 and again, wrote the script on that and directed it and became a huge influence. Again, we mentioned the tension that existed between Shatner and Nimoy. Shatner looked at this and he's like, Nimoy got to direct two films. I should get to write and direct my own Star Trek movie. <laughs> Careful what you wish for. <laughs> yeah. And so he... I'll prove who's the better director of the two. <laughs> yeah. And writer. So Shatner wrote Star Trek V, in which he finally gave Kirk a nemesis that he felt was worthy of the great Starfleet captain, God. Now, he was initially, he was eventually negotiated down to an alien pretending to be God, but in his original pitch, it was actually going to be God himself that Kirk would defeat at the climax of the movie. It did not go well. It was not a pleasant experience for virtually anybody involved in it. And the right, basically, the writing was on the wall. Paramount decided, look, it's time to wrap up the original Star Trek cast and to pass the torch to the next generation, so to speak. And Star Trek VI was basically imagined as what would be an end of an era. Um, and a transitional point for the franchise and a big goodbye to these characters and i think that's watching it now what's most remarkable about it is that it actually is it's actually a film directed by nicholas meyer who did star trek 2 with a story by leonard nimoy and with a script that was written uh, i think co-written by meyer himself as well but it's a movie that actually grapples with the idea of what it means to be old. And in particular, what it means to be an older generation. And what it means to be an older generation in a time of change, recognizing that it's time for you to move on and for somebody to replace you. And rewatching it now, and I think Andrew, Andrew knew I was going to say this uh, because I am such a cliche, but I think that watching it now in this era of like perpetual, like recycled intellectual property and fan service and, you know, movies that are like, oh, hey, you remember this thing from when you were a kid? We got the original actor back and look at how spry he is. Look at how macho he is. Look at how manly he is. Look at all how, you know, how basically he's going to show these kids how things are supposed to be done. I think there's something genuinely moving and affecting about the way in which Star Trek VI is largely about the idea of gracefully stepping aside, of acknowledging that you've had your time in the sun, that you get to do this one great thing, but part of that one great thing is acknowledging that history has moved past you. The recurring motif of, you know, like Kirk and his log asking, 
how does history get past men like me? Or the conversation that he has with Bones when he's lying in bed, he's like, well, you know, I was scared about the future. I am worried about the future. I don't know what the future holds. And it's I- it's very baby boomery as well, yes. which is another kind of a a a um an idea uh, that that it is like right right in the dark movie. It really is. Uh, uh, wheelhouse, where he says kind of like the, 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 this brave new world is hardest for our generation. Yeah. Like where 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 it's kind of like we were the heroes. You know, where we and 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 now kind of we're 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 being uh, decommissioned. Yeah, Gen X is going to have to deal with this. The next Gen X, if you will. But no, no, I, th- I think you're entirely right because again, to put it in context, like to step outside of the Star Trek metaphor for a second, because obviously movies exist in a context outside of franchises. It's worth noting that like this arrived in 1991 on the cusp of the 90s and a large part of 90s culture. And we talked about this when we talked about, like, say, Forrest Gump, for example. But a large part of 90s culture is about looking at the 60s, particularly for America, and making sense of the 60s and coming to terms with the 60s. And what's interesting, what I really love about, like, The Undiscovered Country as a movie that is about grappling with the 60s because it's grappling with a 60s property. Star Trek, the original series, is as 60s as this stuff comes. Most of the media in the 90s that looked at the 60s, like Forrest Gump, was like, man, that was a really chaotic and turbulent time. Maybe things went a bit too far. Maybe things got out of control. We don't know how to make sense of it. And I'm thinking of things like, say, you know, Oliver Stone's work on JFK about the Kennedy assassination. Thinking things like Forrest Gump, where you have like Forrest kind of goes through history the right way and Jenny goes through the counterculture and gets all messed up as a result. Uh, I'm thinking even of things like, say, the Clinton impeachment, which happened in the middle of the decade, where like the argument, one of the big arguments that the... Did did, did the Clinton impeachment ever make the 250? Uh, No, unfortunately it didn't. Um, I think it's more of a miniseries (laughs) than a a film, to be honest. Um, The sequel's not great, though, I have to admit. The sequel's somewhat underwhelming. But no, like the the Clinton impeachment was basically... Yeah, they keep making them, don't they? (laughs) They do. (laughs) And I think they use the same guy, like the same guy in the last two. Yeah. But uh, the Clinton impeachment, like one of the big arguments from the conservative right was that like Clinton was the embodiment of like liberal 60s success coming home to root. That it was basically coming home to roost or to rot even where it's like oh you tolerated like this culture of free love and kind of like moral abandon and basically look what it got you in the white house it got you somebody like clinton who used the office to have sex and how terrible that was what a hot smoker yeah sex player. player yeah um <laughs> he's playing that jazz he's a hippie, <laughs> yeah. he's a hippie. Um, but one of the things that i do find, i really admire about star trek 6 is it basically does that but it does that from a different perspective where like it holds the feet the feet of the cast and crew to the fire and it says Kirk was progressive for the time in which he existed. Kirk and the crew were progressive when they were on television, when they were the heroes of their narrative. They were the future. They embodied everything Andrew said earlier, like the idea of seeing a Russian on the bridge, the idea like Whoopi Goldberg apparently running into her mother's kitchen, like when she saw the first episode of Star Trek and saying, Mommy, there's a black woman on television and she's not answering a phone. Um, You know, the kind of the yeah. idea that... And she, she ain't no maid. She, she ain't no maid. Yeah. It's also the other one as well. Yeah, she's not a maid. She's not answering a phone. And like Maya Jameson, the astronaut, pointing to like Nichelle Nichols and Uhura and saying, that's the reason I became an astronaut. Uh, Maya Jameson, sorry. But yeah, that sort of stuff being progressive and being ahead of its time. And what I like about The Undiscovered Country is it says, but yes, eventually history catches up with you. Eventually, there's a time where you're no longer at the cutting edge, where you're no longer like the future. 
and where 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 it's a good thing that you're not yeah because uh, the future is uh, as uh, as Whitney Houston says, the future is our children. Yeah. Is that something? <laughs> um, uh, but it's it's the just to jump ahead, and I'm sure we're going to jump all over the place. Yeah. But it, it, it's the the the, the fi- kind of for me anyway. The sort of final line. I mean, obviously, obviously, it's not the final line of the movie, but the the, the, the captain's log conclusion. Thing, yeah. It, the, no, in in in. On oh, Kittimer, yeah. where 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 he says thank thank you for re, 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 repaying kind of my or my father's uh, fate, yeah. or for 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 kind of renewing it, and he says you know that thank thank you for for rescuing my son's fate, yeah. Where then and it's such a beautiful satisfying conclusion because it's 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 a real sort of um, thematic knitting of both like his issues but also his confrontation of those issues so he hated the klingons for what they did to his son but realizing that his son would have hated for him to have taken that energy yeah. you know that, that that didn't that that wasn't an appropriate legacy for his son yeah and and that and that the the appropriate legacy for his son is is the kind of ideals that his son would have um, um, would have wanted to live himself if he had gotten to, and it's 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 very um, that's very it felt very affecting and very true. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, and again, like not not to delve too much into like the previous Star Trek movies, but the fact that David died on a planet named Genesis. And the idea that like they literally died on a new world that had been created and the idea that you're right, that does represent the future. And again, not to delve too much into the previous Star Trek movies, because it's interesting because Star Trek 2, which was the previous Nicholas Meyer movie, was also kind of like, well, Kirk is an old warhorse. Does Kirk really have a place in this universe anymore? Kirk has spent his life cheating his way out of no win situations. Eventually, there's going to have to be a cost that he's going to have to reckon with. And Star Trek 3, which I kind of love, is like, yeah, but Star Trek movies are making money again, so we don't really have to deal with any of that stuff. Let's kill off his son. Let's destroy Genesis. Let's bring Spock back, and we don't have to worry about any of this meditation on getting old. So it does feel a appropriate that again it brings it all full circle that like by star trek 6 you have this question of what it means to be old and what it means to pass to the next generation and it's worth noting like when we talk about the franchise elements of it like again this is the kind of thing that i don't think i see i don't think i can see modern media doing which is like accepting that it's okay to move forward with a franchise or with a property that it's okay yeah it it (laughs) It's interesting because kind of the I think what it feels like, and I'm got this is probably something that you can express a lot better. But what this movie feels like is it feels like it's a way of dealing with reconciliation with the Soviet Union, yeah. who are who are who 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 are who are now meant to, we're, we're we're now meant to wel- welcome them with open arms, and that they're going to be in in kind of you know we're we're going to share the same neighborhood of the world with them rather than kind of um live as adversaries and the way the way the movie kind of like intelligently kind of tells that story in a way that like the pe- people who hate Russia are the past and 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 the the future is and obviously like in 1991 they didn't know the future <laughs> so they were allowed to be hopeful yeah, <laughs> um, 
and optimistic, but the 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 thought that um, the future belongs to us and it, that it doesn't belong to uh, division, that it's an inclusive future. Whereas, kind of the I guess the age that we live in now, in terms of Hollywood, it still feels kind of in terms of action movies, it still feels sort of post 9-11. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of exceptions, but it, it still feels it, that the reckoning is a sort of a militaristic reckoning. Yeah. That like Nazi's movies aren't cynical about the armed forces. No. They're thanking them for their service. Yeah. And it, that, it, that, it, that, it, that it's kind of, I mean, with some exceptions, and probably the exceptions are the better movies, like things like The Bourne Supremacy, and, yeah. sorry, The Bourne Identity and, and that, but that, you're talking about that, things like, say, the Transformers movies, where you have like the cooperation yeah, American the military, Godzilla or, movies yeah, as well, or Captain like, Marvel. If we want to get into the Marvel universe, where it's shot with the support of the U.S. military, U.S. Air Force, and things like that. And, yeah, but there's so many tie-ins between yeah. like kind of Hollywood and um, CIA. Yeah, and uh, like all all the Jack Ryan movies. Yeah, and kind of the um, Tom Clancy stuff. Yeah, and, uh, that sort of stuff. Not that they weren't getting made um, before 9/11, but it, it just seems very kind of unfiltered now. Yeah. Whereas in in the past, you could make a movie like this, which was about, it, it was an action movie about reconciliation. Yeah. I mean, actually, it's kind of interesting that you mentioned that, because again, you mentioned the idea that like, it's about coming to terms with, with Russia, and it's very explicitly about that. I mean, again, we'll talk maybe about the Klingons in a moment and kind of what they've historically represented and what they'll represent after this point. But like, the movie is very explicit. The destruction of Praxis is is transparently a metaphor for Chernobyl. It's the disaster that was picked up around the world, and Russia insi- or the Klingons insist, no, 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 there's been a minor incident, but don't worry, any attempt to come and help us will be considered an act of war. Stay on your side of the border. Thank you very much. Um, and the idea that, you know, you have this kind of collapse that's happening in Klingon culture and what that means in terms of like the Cold War going forward. The race stuff, by the way, is definitely there. Like all of us. I'm not discounting um, any, any, any of that. Like it's so, it's so clear. And as well, the, the, the intelligent way that this movie puts a lot of the the blatantly racist lines in in the mouth of like a horror or cartwright yes i i thought was very clever but anyway sorry yeah just just in case kind of uh, somebody is listening to us who to us talk about us and things that we're we're disregarding or discounting or, or kind of stepping um past the 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 race um Analogies. Star Trek will never do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it, 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 like it'll sometimes do it more clumsy <laughs> than, than in others, well, or more obvious, or they'll have like a, a one half the face is black and one half is white. white, and then the difference is that the other the other person has it on the opposite side. Well, no, I mean, okay, well, let's let's talk about the race stuff because again, this gets back to this idea of kind of like sixties utopianism and interrogating sixties utopianism, where like Star Trek for its time. The legacy of Star Trek is, is I would argue, complicated. And the original series is more complicated than a lot of people want to think it is. Because a lot of people want to think of Star Trek as a bastion of, like, liberal utopianism. And a lot of the really great stuff is, I would argue, the parts of the Star Trek franchise that have aged best are the parts that are that. The parts, say, written by Gene Alcoon. Episodes like A Taste of Armageddon, Trouble with Tribbles, Errand of Mercy, the first episode with the Klingons. But it's also rather complicated because you also have, then, episodes that are metaphors for how Vietnam was a necessary war. I'm thinking of episodes like, say, A Private Little War 
more or episodes about how Kirk has to save a primitive society from the intervention of an outside uh, mechanical, cold, logical, rational thing that is controlling and warping them. Like, oh, I don't know, communism would, um, but typically like robots. So things like, say, the Apple, things like For the World is Hollow and I've Touched the Sky, Return of the Archons. I mean, I do want to say I was reading the charter of the European Union today <laughs> and it's it's statement on kind of not quite not quite saying we hold these um truths to be truths self, self, uh, uh, evident but similar kind of um you could say kind of um, this kind of dream of you know freedom and um integrity and pursuit of happiness kind of like along those lines but basically uh, western liberal values yeah. I don't think it's banned necessarily that Star Trek was making that point as kind of as conservative as it can seem now to be thinking kind of uh, the, there was definitely there was definitely elements to which the pushback against um, communism was was overdone. Yeah. But um, I'm glad. Yeah, um, that we live in a Western that, that, I, that I. Yeah, yeah. As bad as capitalism. Or I guess like share um, the 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 whole kind of like idea of rapacious shareholder capitalism, where the the there is no thought of the other stakeholders, like say the environment, <laughs> yeah. or our communities, yeah, or, or, or human people people who do the jobs, yeah. um, and and. and the, yeah. Anyway, sorry, that, that's like a whole kind of other tangent. But okay, um, okay, okay. But to, to to bring it back then, okay, so let's let's accept that and let's go with then something like say, um, Roddenberry scripts for like the Omega Glory, where it's about the Yangs and the Coms and the Yellow Race, and Kirk is talking about how the Yellow Race is savage and untrustworthy and all that sort of stuff. Or episodes like the Turnabout Intruder, where Kirk has his body swapped with a woman because women can't be captains. And the episode is about how a rational Kirk behaves while he's controlled by a woman. And there's actually a court martial in the middle of it where they determine Kirk has been taken over by a woman because only a woman would be so irrational. As, uh, what I'm basically saying is aspects of the original Star Trek, while the show was progressive and while it was like great and while I adore it and while I love it, acknowledging that parts of it maybe haven't aged well and maybe acknowledging that, you know, it's a different world out there in the future. That's that's yeah, one of the things yeah. that I... Sorry, the... the... There, there was really no need for me to, to, <laughs> no. to, to call you out on that one because kind of the, it, it, it definitely it does kind of seem like subtly kind of like McCarthyistic, I guess. But to, and not all of it. Like I'm not, I'm not. In some ways. Yeah, in some and like again, of it. every like that's the thing. Everything ages, and that, and that's the thing. A lot of Star Trek has aged really, really well. Like I would argue, like the City on the Edge of Forever is as good an episode of television as has ever existed. I would argue, like the Errand of Mercy is one of the best pieces of fiction ever written about Vietnam. Um, like that sort of stuff has aged remarkably. But I think that like what I like about the Undiscovered Country. And you like you you hit on it there, and we'll we'll talk maybe specifically about Russia in a moment. But the idea that you know the people who had built their life hating Russia, or the people who had built their life like obsessed with the idea of the Russia as an enemy, as an ordering principle on their worldview, how history needed to get past that, and how that was a part even of Star Trek, like even of Star Trek, which was liberal and utopian and hopeful and optimistic about the future. Even that had that kind of aspect baked into it. Like, one of the things that I really admire about Star Trek VI, and something you would never, never get away with today, um, is the fact that it does make Kirk actually racist. 
um, that they're dying, let them yeah. die. Like Kirk actually says that. And you're, you're right that it's motivated by, it comes from a personal perspective, the loss of his son um, in Star Trek three, but he's allowed to be a flawed human being. He's allowed to yeah. have that reflexive action. And again, that reflexive action makes sense. Even outside the context of the death of his son, he grew up like I, at war with the Klingons. I can imagine, I can imagine it happening today and fans being outraged. Yes. It's but, like, that's not Kirk. That's that's exactly you know? what I'm thinking. Like I'm thinking of like Luke Skywalker in the Last Jedi. I'm thinking like Exactly. That'd be it. It's like this is not the Kirk I remember. And it's like, did you watch Errand of Mercy? Did you watch The Trouble with Tribbles? Did you watch Star Trek Three? And I think that's and it, like it's worth noting by the way that like at the time there was blowback. Um, I've read the novelization of Star Trek Six because I'm a huge stinking nerd. Um, and the novelization of Star Trek Six is incredibly passive aggressive. It's very much like, oh, Kirk said this line from the script, but he didn't mean it. Or, oh, Kirk said this line from the script, but Carol Marcus from Star Trek II was in a coma because of a Klingon attack. And he just was in the heat of the moment saying that thing. It was just a fresh incident by rogue Klingons. And it's like, it feels like you can see fans pushing back against it, but because... I wish fans would just focus on making more um, <laughs> Fan fiction. versions of Hamlet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I saw one of those oh, in the see? in the special features. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm, I'm, but more power to them. Like yeah. you know, um. Um, uh, they, they, um, I disagree <laughs> with um, with General Kang. Or no, actually, sorry, it's no, not no, Kang. No, it's, no, it's, it's Gorkan. Gorkan. Yeah, Chancellor Gorkan. Who says um, you have never you haven't experienced Shakespeare until you've read him in the original Klingon. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I've, 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 I've. I suppose, I suppose, I ought to learn Klingon <laughs> in order to. to fully and it is it. on Duolingo, by the way. Yes, which is nice. Um, have, out, have you have no, you been learning any? No, I, I have. I have nothing. Not that bad. <laughs> um, but what, what if you could learn Klingon cooking? <laughs> Gah. Uh, there is actually yeah. a, there is actually a cookbook. Neelix has a cookbook from Star Trek Voyager, um, which is yes. One of the strangest Star Trek toy-ins that die-ins that exist. How you can cook like me, and put it spelled with C U C K. Thank you, Tom Paris. Um, <laughs> but any, that was a very strange arc. And like again, Sorry. we're not going to talk about that. But Kess was two years old, which like has aged terribly. Um, not that it was not that it was good in the nineties, but when you go back and watch it now, it's so creepy. So very, very, very creepy. But anyway, sorry, back to talking about the Russia thing. Because yes, that was the analogy that, that kind of drove it. Because Nimoy was like, okay, 1991, it's the fall of the Berlin Wall, Russia's over, um, you know, the triumph of liberal democracy. What does that mean in terms of Star Trek? And again, you're right. Like, this is all the stuff that Darren loves. It's the end of history. The idea that, like, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, like, history is over. Liberal democracy is triumphed. There is no future. Um, and, like, he actually has a quote when he talks, like, when he breaks up the Kittimer Conference. And Azimuthur asks, what's the meaning of all this? He says, it's about the future. Some people think the future means the end of history. Well, we haven't run out of history quite yet. But it's the idea that, again as you kind of alluded to there, and like as Gorkin, who maybe read Shakespeare in the original Klingon and has a different interpretation to most Shakespearean scholars, the idea that the undiscovered country is not death, as most people who have read Hamlet would postulate that it is, but the undiscovered country is the future and you have no idea what lies ahead, uh, which is kind of striking, which I, I really, really like about it. It fits into kind of what another thing that Star Trek is about which is a, a discovery. Yes. Not the 
<laughs> show, <laughs> Star Trek Discovery. But it, but it is a good name for a a Star Trek show because it kind of encapsulates what Star Trek meant for me as a child. Aside from, I think a lot of the humane points that it was trying to make might have stuck with me to an extent and 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 rewards a lot of what rewatching but as um when i was young the the amazing thing to me was about this final frontier where we have um circumnavigated the globe and everything on this earth has been um discovered of course it hasn't like there, there, yeah. there's there's plenty to 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 kind of discover but um this idea of um infinite space the, and, the final frontier um, yeah yeah and every 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 week say on star trek the next generation because it very much felt at the beginning like that's what the show was going yeah. to be where um later on it became like later on you had stuff like the klingons becoming a regular feature the romans yeah becoming, where they're the kind of retracing yeah. kind of you know places they've already been <laughs> yeah um and, same old worlds uh, as opposed to strange old, new worlds um, yeah yeah exactly that, 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 that was that was where i'd like that, that was where i wanted to work i guess on the um, those were the sorts of stories that I was that I was writing because I, I got into writing because my like um, imagination was was kind of um, uh, uh, set alight by this and other things. Yeah. Like I'd, I'd, I mean, I, I, I quite enjoyed Stargate when it came out. Um, Which was arguably even more that format with the with the Stargate obviously connecting to all the other Stargates and therefore giving you a new world, which always looked like Vancouver, generally speaking, but a new different. New world. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I didn't I didn't much care for the show. Um, and you would think that the show would have would have been right up my alley because it was Stargate and MacGyver. <laughs> and <laughs> and the pilot aired on, I think, Skinamax and so had completely unnecessary and arbitrary nudity amazing (laughs) (laughs) it's great because when you when you buy the dvd box sets only the first disc has an 18 cert on it the rest of them are all pg it's remarkable (laughs) it does feel like the kind of show that would have arbitrary unnecessary uh nudity like it it has a look (laughs) show, doesn't it? well well, when your pilot is there it's kind of shaped by that i suspect it kind of like they all look like they're they're like wearing baby oil (laughs) (laughs) just for the lens flare but no i mean like that's the thing and actually you mentioned that there about like the the handling of race in there um and like it is interesting how you mentioned the fact that it puts the the line you know they're animals or they become alien trash of the galaxy in the mouth of cartwright who's played by brock Peters. like again you have that interrogation of kind of 60s utopian liberal thinking because like obviously brock peter's great actor um a lot of great work and particularly in say the star trek milieu he also played cisco's father on deep space nine but he will probably always be best known for playing the character of tom robinson on to kill in to kill a mockingbird uh the adaptation 1962 and you have like moments where the Klingons, you know, where the Klingons come for a diplomatic dinner and you have the line. And I suspect that Nichelle Nicole was supposed to say it, but she refused to. So you have Chekhov delivering the line, guess who's coming to dinner, uh, which is, again, another reference to a 1960s movie about race. And I kind of like the way that the movie's constantly reminding you of that and constantly putting that in context because it understands that like... Swiss. 
with Sidney Poitier. It? it was indeed, yes. About about like a woman who takes her black boyfriend home to meet her parents and the chaos that ensues as a result of that. It was remade, I think, in 2004 as Guess Who, starring Bernie Mac and Aston Kutcher, uh, with the roles reversed. And very much not as a prestige what? Oscar. Do you not know this? Have you not heard this? Have you not- what? <laughs> <laughs> Hold on a second. Have you not? Do you not know that that was a thing? This is great, actually. I mean, you know what? <laughs> That's kind of fun. I I I, I like the 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 that sort of subversion. That sort of moxie, um, like playing it as a comedy, a romantic comedy. Um, they're they're doing the the same beast that probably they did it earlier. Yeah. That it, it, have you have you seen Twenty Two Jump Street? Yes. Oh yes, yes, with them. <laughs> With Channing Tatum, yeah, and, and Jonah and, Hill uh, and Ice Cube, yes, and Ice Cube's, I, and daughter. I, Ice Cube's uh, daughter, yeah. um, in 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 the movie, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, but I, I, again, like you have the 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 sense in which Star Trek Six understands that you are watching it as a piece of sixties culture and kind of grappling with the legacy of that, which I kind of really admire about the movie because it it understands how it exists. It understands like that it exists in a particular time and place and that like Kirk isn't just somebody who exists in this movie Kirk is somebody who exists as an artifact of 60s culture and so you can do things with him that you couldn't do if he was a new character or that you couldn't do if this was a standalone movie and it's kind of like um the strength of it as well is that it can that sort of idea can apply to like much subtler racism you know, in 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 the sense that as somebody grows up and learns things, one doesn't tend to do that without making mistakes. Yeah. You know, and 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 trying to fit into to to a world where where these sorts of like inequalities are 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 better understood or better portrayed, um, you will try to kind of uh, reframe these things in your own words and do a terrible job of it. And you have to kind of accept that, like, oh, I'm I'm trying to get my point across, but actually, the people who understand this aren't um, aren't the likes of me. Um, I need to kind of listen, uh, basically, and and stop listen, taking up the yeah. stage and and step aside. I guess, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think that that's the thing that I really admire about the movie, and what I find really moving about it, and something that I find I don't think would happen today. It's the idea that, yeah, and again. As somebody, like, again, we are two, uh, the joke about the confidence of mediocre white men, we're two white guys hosting a podcast, we are all, not always the best, best kind of position people to talk about, like, what we end up talking about. I'd like about. to explain to the listeners a little bit about racism. <laughs> yeah, um, I think we, I think we have a lot of valid perspective to share on this. But no, no, the idea that, like, we're, we're well-meaning, but we're never going to be, and the fact that we're getting older as well, like, we're both in our 30s as well. So, like, what we thought was like progressive and like what was forward thinking when we were younger is now again as you point out probably taken for granted and now people younger than us have much more radical more progressive ideas that are moving forward and i think like it's remarkable what's remarkable about star trek 6 is that it's that boomer sensation you mentioned where it's it's made by an older generation it's starring an older generation but it's Rather than reacting reflexively and doing something like, say, to pick an example, you know, the Rise of Skywalker does with Star Wars, where the Rise of Skywalker is basically about, well, don't worry, no matter how bad you screw up, your space dad's going to be here to save you. Don't worry. 
Um, it's like, oh, don't worry. Don't worry about Poe trying to save those people. Lando's going to arrive with the Millennium Falcon at the last minute because he's your space dad. He's going to hit on this woman who may possibly be his daughter, but it's okay because he's your space dad. Um, as opposed to Star Trek Six, going, no, okay, maybe, maybe step aside. Maybe be a bit graceful. Maybe understand, as you point out, the subtler versions of racism. There's a really great moment in this over dinner. Where, like, they're having dinner with the Klingons. And they're, oh, yes. And where, like, uh, Azabetta, who is the daughter of Gorkin, and as you pointed out, like, represents the future as much as David does, where she points out that, like, human rights, the very name. Inalienable. Yeah, inalienable. Wow. Yeah. And, like, the language that Kirk and Spock are using, and the language. And that, that, that's what Chekhov says, isn't it? Yeah. Where he's trying to kind of um, contribute. <laughs> yeah. In the alien of human rights. But yeah, no, like the fact that she's she's not wrong is the thing. And again, you know, I know mm. you and I have different feelings about Star Trek Discovery, particularly the first season of Star Trek Discovery. But there's a really nice moment in the first season of Discovery where a Klingon points out that like the universal translator, like as much as it is a handy narrative device for a fictional TV show involving a bunch of aliens, from a Klingon perspective, it's inherently imperialistic because it basically takes the words of a Klingon and places them in a context that is Federation, that's designed for Federation ears, that kind of loses the context that exists in it. it it's that, a, sorry. That's the problem with with with, with watching um, Hamlet and Klingon with subtitles. <laughs> you miss that context. You need yeah, to you need yeah. to actually learn Klingon to appreciate and understand it. But like it, it's little things like that, and again, it's things that probably never would have occurred to Kirk and Spock, and never would have occurred to people of their generation. It reminds me of the kind of the thing that. I guess myself or an older person, say a a, a boomer, um, <laughs> would 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 say they, they they might they might say something like, um, oh, with um, with in Indian, oh, sorry, Native American, yeah, and then they would be corrected again, yeah, you know, where it's like, oh, no, you don't say Native American. American uh, is is a an imperialistic kind of. Um, uh, that's 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 something that that uh, that that we have created and put onto a native people who were there already. It's named after like an Italian person, and you call them say native peoples, yeah. and they're like, oh, <laughs> I thought I was, um... I thought I was being progressive and hip and with it. Um, well, no, I mean, like, but that's the point. Is like even within the context of this, like this movie. Like you mentioned, like Kirk's that closing scene where he, was, you know, thanks Azabeter for restoring his son's faith. But the yes, moment, the moment yeah. where he has like the closing monologue and he does the Star Trek, the classic voiceover to boldly go where no man, and then he pauses and he catches himself, and he says, yeah. "No one." has gone before and now obviously that's a nice little in joke because like from 1987 on the next generation patrick stewart had said where no one has gone before but it's also an acknowledgement that you know in 1966 when star trek started nobody ever would have given any thought to the gendering of that or the fact that you know the inherent assumption that who would be going would be a man and it's much better than having him say uh no one because it's not acknowledging uh, the mistake. Yeah, that's it exactly. If, uh, if if he doesn't say the wrong thing and then correct himself. Yeah. Um, and I think I think like that's what I really love about Star Trek Six is that like it it's willing to have Kirk say the wrong thing and it's willing because because he like again the fact that like that 
even ignoring the obvious racism of like let them die um just and again just reflexively you know um and the kind it's of like don't don't trust them yeah don't don't believe them um don't believe them <laughs> it's so it, it, like i i definitely like other people more than no sorry why am i even saying yeah. that that's like unnecessarily kind of mean <laughs> mean shatner has great great moments in in and like the, his it's kind of unfair in a way because there there is much less that Spock has to do or that, that Leonard Nimoy has to do because part of his character is this kind of laconic um restraint sort of, you know stoic quality where 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 he's 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 able to kind of um you know deliver deliver things slowly and um and more kind of concisely but it, it it's it's which Shatner, Shatner does does do some 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 great stuff here that 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 whole scene yeah. I mean one of my favorite but I I, I I do want to give some love to Nimoy <laughs> I feel like I can't kind of go any further without like probably one of one of one of, one of the lines in this movie that I think most about um when I when I think of the movie and I just I, I I I love it, and I don't know why, but um, I really like uh, Spock's line, where he says there 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 is an old Vulcan uh, proverb. Vulcan proverb, only um, they could only send Nixon to China. You know? <laughs> it doesn't translate or, properly. Um, yeah, <laughs> but it's 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 so kind of. Um, it's this, and it's a funny thing in Star Trek because Spock is a very funny character. Yeah. Who we are, who we are supposed to naively think doesn't understand humor <laughs> or doesn't understand jokes, but of course he does. Like the thing about Spock is that he is a he's he's a half human who underplays his uh, his humanity, but it is there, and he's aware of it too, and is like uses it to to great effect like it's very funny like that line in star trek 5 um uh <laughs> where it's like it's a joke it's, <laughs> <fuck."> <laughs> it's like it's it's meant to be funny right it's like is is, is it <laughs> <You know? laughs> oh no sorry sorry they're 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 doing like row row row, row your, your boat, boat. yeah and it's like, is this fun? <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think, like, for, for me, what really works about Spock it, it is that it's that contrast that you mentioned. And again, I know I'm fonder of the Abrams movies than you are, but that kind of sense that, again, they just... they The problem is that they kind of have Zachary Quinto just come out and say the subtext out loud. But the bit where it's like, you know, Spock's problem isn't that he feels too little, it's that he feels too much. Where, like, you, you watch Spock and there's always a sense that, as you point, that he's underplaying his human side, but that it is there. And I think that's what makes Nimoy's performance remarkable. And I think it's it's the difference. It's why Vulcans are so hard to play across the franchise. And sorry, I know we're talking about Star Trek VI, but just in general, it's when you look at actors guest starring as Vulcans, it's very hard for 
a lot of them to do it as well as Nimoy does, because they tend to play Vulcans as robots, as characters who don't have emotions, as opposed to how Nimoy plays Spock, which is a character who has just, like, thoroughly repressed his emotions. They're there, and they bubble through. Mm. And, like, again, lots of really great, really arch lines. Um, Like, the moment where he explains, yeah. to, he explains to Spock, Scotty, about the problem that they're having with the engines. Um, And, like, again, Scotty just not getting it. But things like even... And, again, it's a small little uh, touch that kind of speaks to Myers as a director. The reference that he makes to, as an ancestor of mine once said... Once you remove yes. the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Which you kind of like. Part of you is wondering. Uh, we 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 have watched but haven't covered the, <laughs> the eleven percent solution. Seven seven percent solution. Yeah. yeah. Um, which because because um, again, Meyer started writing like Sherlock Holmes fan fiction. He wrote the novel, then wrote the screenplay, then directed the movie. Um, in which Sherlock Holmes teams up with Sigmund Freud. Um, it's quite something. I really enjoyed it, actually. But I think that, like, you watch that scene and you're, like, you're wondering, A, is Spock joking? Like, is is Spock, is this Spock being funny? B, is it possible that Sherlock Holmes exists in the universe of Star Trek and is actually, like, his biological great-great-great-great-great-grandfather? Or C, and again, this idea that, like, again, that, that Myers is playing with, which is, the understanding that you have that Star Trek is an allegory or a metaphor, and so it doesn't matter whether or not, like, Sherlock Holmes is real in the world of Star Trek. It's that Spock as a character is a literary descendant of Sherlock Holmes. Because, um, again, you have that line later on when Kirk, you know, when he's leaving Space Dock, second star on the right and straight on till morning, for example. And all those kind of, like, metatextual references that we mentioned, like having Brock Peters say that line, like saying, guess who's coming to dinner? It's all very, like, it's playful without being, like, winky or self-aware. It, it's a very thin line to walk, to walk, I think. Yeah, and, I, like, I don't, I, I'm probably biased, you know, because I, I watched these movies when I was quite young. Yeah. Myself and my brother. In fact, I think it was my brother who got into Star Trek before I did. And one of the things that I'm but like really grateful to my brother for is kind of having to watch things that he was watching, <laughs> you know, yeah. or him getting to kind of because he's the older brother, like decide maybe or one wanting to kind of share in the things that he was enjoying and discovering like, um, you know, how great they were. And Star Trek being one of them and it's going to the extra vision in I think it was Babylon each week kind of getting a uh, a new um, not a new but an <laughs> a, the next uh, Star Trek movie you know start yeah. start start starting with the first one. Oh, so you watch them all kind of incrementally I think so I, 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 I imagine we may have I don't think we did actually. No, I saw I saw Generations in the cinema, okay. and I think I had seen the six movies um, uh, before that because I think I got into the show. The show was huge, by the way. The Next Generation was, was massive. Yeah, it was, and and I I I don't know if it was a thing that was especially in Ireland, but I remember it was it was like, like obviously it was big in the states and like uh, Trekkies can be a kind of a a small but you know voiceful 
um, uh, uh, segment where 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 you know you you have with the original series, it I suppose it 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 wasn't such a hugely popular show, or was it? But the, but the fandom was um, so intense, right? Yeah, the the original show didn't necessarily attract a huge audience when it was on the air. It attracted a small but vocal um, subset of hardcore fans who did things like do letter yeah. writing campaigns and managed to keep the show on the air. Fantastic work by, say, Sue Sackett and Yo Trimble in that regard. Um, and again, what was interesting is after the show went off the air, you had fans keeping it alive, say, writing novelizations for Bantam Books, for Pocket Books. And again, a lot of the, the way in which that shaped the show that was to come. But the original series only really got popular in syndication. And again, a lot of the writers who would write for the next generation, people like, say, Ronald D. Moore, for example, or Rene Echevarria, would talk about how their experience of Star Trek, or Manny Cotto even, to pick an example from Enterprise later on, would talk about how their experience of watching Star Trek was not like in the 60s, when it was on on Friday night, because all the cool kids went out on Friday night, and so all the nerds stayed home and watched Star Trek. It was when Star Trek was aired, those 80 episodes in syndication. The latchkey yeah. kid generation, their, ki- their parents being at work, them coming home from school, doing their homework, sitting in front of the television, absorbing that. And I think you're you're right, actually, when you mention the next generation being huge. This is something that I think it's like the cover of the RTA guides, the yeah. the the best of both worlds kind of the the biggest thing I remember be, was um, the return of Spock in unification shortly before this aired. Um, yeah, in reunification, yeah. yeah. And again, like the thing is, the next generation, and I think this is something that people forget when they talk about Star Trek, because the assumption is Star Trek was a cult show. And that is true of, I would argue, the original series. And it's true of the shows that came after the next generation, uh, particularly after Voyager kind of whittled away its audience on UPN. I would argue Enterprise is very much a cult show, for example. But I think that, you know, Star Trek The Next Generation aired in syndication. It was one of the biggest shows in the world. Ronald Reagan visited the set during the production of, I believe, one of the two Redemption episodes. I think it was Redemption uh, 2, because I think it was shortly before The Undiscovered Country was released, ironically enough. Um, It was part of the conversation. It picked up a Best Drama Series nomination at the Emmys in its final year, which was unheard of for a science fiction show. And by the way, fun fact... There's an episode of Deep Space Nine in which Bashir gets nominated for an award that he's never going to win and becomes an insufferable prick. That was the Deep Space Nine writers having a bit of fun at the expense of the Next Generation writers um, who had just been nominated for Best Drama Series that they were never going to win, uh, which I <laughs> which I kind of love. Um, but no, like uh, it, it does. It has this kind of, like the Next Generation was a cultural phenomenon. And again, it's notable that like when we talk about like Star Trek nostalgia within our generation. Our generation remembers the next generation. When we talk about what Star Trek should be, and again, you kind of talked about it there that mess, the voyage of discovery, but the idea of, and again, sorry, this is where we're going to go down a tangent, and I apologize for this. But when we no, absolutely, because the, the, this is us learning the lesson of the movie. Yeah, um, I think, or I hope, I, because I am a Star Trek fan who doesn't who's who's tried to watch a bit of kind of discovery and picard and it's not for me yeah and that's fine um and that's okay (laughs) (laughs) you know it's both okay that i don't like it and it's also okay that people do yeah that that's that's it exactly like that's that's the thing that really really bothers me right so like 
we this is again you point out this is the beautiful thing about star trek 6 star trek 6 arrived in 1991 when star trek the next generation conquered the world and it was about original series star trek fans learning that okay fine the bald guy is now the captain he is the captain now to quote captain phillips basically <laughs> um next movie we're going to drop a bridge on kirk it'll be fine but i mean the, the, <laughs> i love generations by the way i, I know i know I, i've said that before <laughs> i know we will probably like depending on if people actually listen to this we may do a, another star trek movie i don't know <laughs> But yeah, you made us do it. You made us you do, do it. it. If, yeah, listeners, it's all your fault. But what I will say is that, like, you know, Star Trek The Next Generation was usually popular and it defined what Star Trek was for a generation. You talked about that idea of, like, Star Trek as going to a new world every week and stuff like that. But the idea, like, and it happens a lot with Star Trek fandom, where Star Trek fans talk about Star Trek as a utopian future in which everyone gets along, in which there's no conflict, in which, like, humanity has worked through there's all... There's no money. Yeah, there's no money. Everybody's worked... The replicator has has like removed scarcity as an issue. The holodeck provides everything that you might possibly want. Um, you know, there, there's very little war out there. There's nobody starving. Everybody can read. It's it's just beautiful out there. That's kind it's of, a John Lennon uh, <laughs> future as well, be, be, because like it, it is kind of like well, there is I mean, no religion. Imagine, imagine there is no religion. Yeah, yeah. Where where um. It's only it's only aliens. Yes. You no. Know, uh, pe- uh, like the Bajorans in... or, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And there, there is something very kind of condescending <laughs> um, uh, about that. But I think even even at the time, I didn't have a problem with it. Yeah. Because I was like, I guess if Star Trek says there's no God, <laughs> then there isn't. <laughs> Kirk blew him up in Star Trek V after all, right? Am I right? Um, but what, what I will say, though, is that like, that version of Star Trek that I just described there, the John Lennon future, that is all the next generation. If you go back and watch the original Star Trek, the universe is chaos. The universe is nightmare. The universe is full of dead civilizations and monsters and salt vampires and planets that will kill red shirts whenever they set foot on them. The Klingons are constantly on the verge of war. Civilizations are constantly rising and falling. There are nightmares. The, the universe does not make any logical sense. Repeatedly, characters are confronted with the idea that there are godlike beings playing with their lives who have no real interest in what human existence is like. I'm thinking of characters like, say, you know, Trelane, for example, but the Telosians in the cage, even the aliens from, you know, Charlie X, for example, who like remove people's faces, the aliens from kind of metamorphosis. And I mean, you think of like Q from the next generation is arguably the only example of that that really carries over. But even Q is benign by the standards of those malicious trickster gods. You have things like, say, the Lovecraftian influence on scripts like, say, Catspaw or like, you know, what are little girls made of? Androids who are remnants of civilizations that have collapsed and died, you know, worlds that have fallen into savagery. Um, the universe in the original Star Trek was chaotic and arbitrary and random and horrific. And that was because I would argue it reflected the world of the 60s. And I think, you know, to bring it back to, you know, us having our Star Trek 6 moment, I think that when people look at the new Star Trek shows and argue that they're they're not optimistic or they're not hopeful or they're not utopian, I think they reflect the turbulence of this time in a way that is very like the 60s Star Trek. It's it's very chaotic. It's very random. It's very nonsensical. Nothing really makes sense. And I think for a generation of fans who came of age in the 90s with the next generation, that version of Star Trek is is frankly odd and alien and hostile. And it's not what Star Trek is kind of meant to be. And like, I, I'll put my hands up here and say... 
I really like the first season of Star Trek Discovery. I have mixed feelings about Picard. I personally don't really care for the second or third season of Discovery. And as you point out, the important thing is that that's fine. Like, the important thing is that it's not for me, but the important thing is also that it's for lots of other people and it makes lots of other people happy. And I have enough Star Trek. I have, you know, 700 odd episodes of Star Trek. You know, I'm probably still going to watch Discovery. I'm I'm hoping that it will eventually be for me again, but I'm not angry at the fact that it isn't, if that makes sense. You know, I accept that, you know, for people coming up now, this is what their Star Trek looks like. And there are people who seem to love it. Like, I mean, and I think I look at people who love it and I look at people who love it who are like, finally Star Trek can actually have a gay character or a transgender character, which was not possible even on 90s Star Trek. I mean, the story that they tell during the shooting of The Offspring, directed by uh, Jonathan Frakes, who played Riker, there was a moment in that where... Data's daughter Lal was going to learn what love is and from she learns it from Whoopi Goldberg playing Guinan and Guinan was supposed to gesture at three couples in 10 forward who were going to be holding hands and in love and apparently one of them it was decided was going to be a same-sex couple but apparently David Livingston uh, the producer for the show rushed down to set to make sure that that didn't happen and things like say the only time that they could reference homosexuality was in metaphor as in episodes like say I mean the host at a push you could argue the outcast with the Janai with Riker, which is kind of a metaphor for transgenderism, but isn't actually yeah, actually. I saw that uh, recently, and while well, you could probably kind of point out um, issues with it, or say kind of like where you would want it to be more kind of courageous or something. Yeah. I I I did find it remarkable for how they were even kind of broaching that uh, uh, topic. Yeah. In and in at at that time, which for me, of course, wasn't that long. <laughs> <laughs> because I am a young man. Um, no, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. but and even things like say rejoined on Deep Space Nine, where it had the franchise's first same-sex kiss, but it had to come up with an excuse of like trills with former lives to do it. You know, in order rather than just having like two men or two women who loved each other. Um, and I think like that's the Star Trek Six moment right there. Well, okay. It, 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 what it is is it's a it's a i think the strength of star trek is for me anyway and it doesn't actually matter <laughs> yeah, yeah, much yeah. what i think <laughs> um is is in disguising those sorts of um points within 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 the format of um you know of 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 science fiction yeah you know where where it's it, it there is nothing kind of artful about um just having kind of two gay characters there we're gay and 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 them being gay um and and but, like you either like it or you don't <laughs> you know but ver, 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 versus kind of kind of portraying it in such a way that maybe it makes somebody think about it who wouldn't otherwise have thought about it yeah, no, I, I can see that. And I think that's a valid point. I do I do also think, though, that like when you can do both and there's no reason why you couldn't have Guinan's monologue have, you know, two men or two women holding hands in 10 forward. I don't see. Why. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Like, I, 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 like, obviously, like, uh, I, I like that that Star Trek tries to kind of push the, the the boundaries. And I don't like that somebody from the uh, studio decided that like, um, that's 
not Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> like, I guess. yeah. No, no. But I mean, and again, like that, that's, I think, the, again, the kind of Star Trek six moment. It's, it's the point at which kind of we accept that, you know, in the 90s. And again, you know, there's a valid debate to be had about whether in the 90s that stuff, you know, whether or not they should have done more. I think like Iris even bear, I watched the, the deep face. That's not- always kind of very easy to say. No, no, I know. I find. Okay. Like, like that, it, that it's kind of like, Oh, they should have done more. They were such, um, they should have helped Jesus down uh, off the cross. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, they were such wimps. Um, um, well, no, I, uh, to be fair, Ira Bear himself, the guy who showed Randy Space Nine, has been quite frank and said, "I should have done more." And like, I mean, I, yeah, yeah. I like, I love Bear, and I, I think you know, I, I think he did. I think Bear did more than a lot of people did in that, like. And again, sorry, this is very nerdy for people. <laughs> the, the, like, evil universe <laughs> where they're all quite yeah, sexual yeah. <laughs> and have mustaches. That was, that was Bear, by the way. That was all Bear. Um, that was Bear trying. Um, <laughs> where it's like, yeah. I'm doing my I want to tell, like, LGBTQ stories. <laughs> yeah. And I want to, yeah. Um. Well, again, like, the thing about the mirror universe where they're all gay, the, the, really, the really frustrating, like, again, we're going down Star Trek, like, fandom wormholes. The really I'm sorry. No, no, I'm People are gonna love this. this. The thing that I really love about like the the mirror universe like stories is that like it began with the idea that like mirror universe Kira the intendant was so narcissistic that she just wanted to screw herself that like her proper prime universe counterpart came over and like. Intendant Kira was so in love with who she was, she was like, yeah, I would bone her hard. Um, And then, like, somehow over the course of the next couple of episodes, it went, oh, by the way, everybody's just a bisexual. That's that's, 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 that's what we've taken away from this. It's like, yeah. Where it's kind of like, look how open-minded we are. Everyone in this universe. In this evil people. universe, yeah. <laughs> in in the Star Wars universe is a bisexual. Um, but but like, I think like, to, and to give Bear credit though, like, I sorry, I, I know I said to give Bear credit and then we just like rained on Bear's like... No, no, no. But to, yeah, to actually yeah. to give him credit, I would argue there's a seven season episode of Deep Space called Chimera. Uh, which is remarkable because it is so, so angry. It's one of the last uh, episodes of Deep Space Nine. So it's it's the point at which Bear knows that the show is over and it knows that he's not going to do more Star Trek afterwards. And there's a real sense of, well, I'm going to burn my bridges while I'm here, in which Odo meets a male changeling and the two of them start linking um, in public where they they turn into piles of goo and they kind of like meld into one another and it's been used on the show before as a very explicit metaphor for you know sexual contact and sexual union however in the past odo is only melded with female with with changings that represent as female shapeshifters so odo meets a male shapeshifter and starts melding with him in public and all of the characters around him including the starfleet officers are like Ooh, that's a little bit gross. Maybe you should, like, do that in the privacy of your own home or something. Like, O'Brien in particular doesn't come out of this particularly flatteringly. Um, and it's it's an interesting piece because it, it very much feels like Bear... But, oh, oh, O'Brien did vote yes. Yeah, <laughs> to be clear. <laughs> in the referendum. <laughs> but, like... <laughs> a few years later, yeah. <laughs> they had, like, a referendum on whether it's okay for shapeshifters. To meld to... in public with other male-presenting yeah. shapeshifters. Um, but I do yeah. kind of, like, I do like that the episode is very much like, yeah, this is the this is the boundary for Star Trek. This is what the head office told us we couldn't put in the show, just so you're clear. Um, and I kind of like, again, it's it's that aspect of Star Trek sixdom to it, which I think that, and it's weird because it's, it's, 
a metaphor for like racism and it's a metaphor for like Russia, but it's also a metaphor for like our relationship with things like Star Trek or with Star Wars, where it's like at a certain point, it's okay for it to be over. It's okay for it to end. It's okay for Hmm. there to be a final adventure. Um, And I I feel like that's something that like pop culture would never allow these days because the studio would be like, no, 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 no. But like in 20 years, because like think of like Star Trek Picard, like- the point is that, and and there is there is there is a kind of a seduction yeah. attempted between like Kang and Kirk, where it's like, come on, Kirk, yeah. like, you do prefer it one this way. warrior to another. Yeah. yeah, you do prefer it this way. We we don't have to em- embrace the future. The past isn't over. The past is right here. Yeah. But you know, it's it's that, where, that Star um, Trek joke, like it's 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 the Simpsons joke where it's like Star Trek Seven, so very tired, and it's like again, <laughs> again with the Klingons, and like that's literally what Chang is saying. He's like, "Yes, you could do it again with the Klingons, um, and again and again, and just keep doing it again with the Klingons." Sorry, that sounds much more sexual than I mean it to. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, I mean, we can talk about sex. <laughs> there, there was no. Um, there was <laughs> there was no moment in Star Trek Six where like somebody woke up like <laughs> with like some like a goblet of WKD next to their bed. <laughs> and they look over and there's a Klingon. Um, um, what I want to know is how how the conspiracy got started. I kind of really want to know. I want to be there at the first meeting of like the conspirators between like Starfleet and the Klingons because I get the irony of it. The idea of like both sides conspiring together and forming an alliance to prevent an alliance from happening. But I do kind of want to be there in the first meeting of like Chang and like Admiral Cartwright and Colonel West, the none too subtly named in an allusion to Colonel Oliver North. Um I kind of like I wonder like how they met like did, like where you send the messages through the channels and how you figure out you know this peace thing we don't really want that to happen so what do you say we stage an assassination and coup huh huh it's like well I I I I all 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 I hear is another Klingon that I want to kill. <laughs> <laughs> good, good call good call um, uh, but I feel like maybe what you said is okay <laughs> but uh, but no like I mean and, and like Chang is is a remarkable kind of character again because Plummer plays him so so well because he's so and obviously the villain Plummer had a lot to do with that, yes. that too like the choices kind of made um in it and there were a few yeah kind of there were a few that i'm aware of there's probably tons that you're aware of but the the the, the choice when it came to the makeup yeah like the not wanting to and i think it's a wise choice I, like like as much as there's a kind of a a, a a joke of like next generation generations going back <laughs> and watching the original series and wondering why don't they have these cow pats on their forehead <laughs> Um, why, um, why, why, are, why, are, why are they just in brown face um, is one of the more yeah. uncomfortable questions about the original Star Trek yeah and and I think there's a moment in, in uh, Deep Space Nine where uh, Worf is like oh we don't talk about it <laughs> with that. outsiders yeah, <laughs> yeah. Is, great. and you want to know what's really strange like again you didn't watch Enterprise I don't think but Enterprise somehow got a whole two-parter out of explaining that really yeah 
It's not bad. Well, it's not. It's not as bad as you would expect it to be. It's completely unnecessary. I think. Room. I think you might have explained this to me before. <laughs> yeah, it's the, it's pure fan service. It involves Khan because, of course, it does. Because everything involves um, you know. There's... Does it have bling ons? <laughs> no, that's 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 much later. That's the J.J. Abrams alternate universe. <laughs> um, I know the the, the um, but yeah, the, the, that that was his kind of um, uh, choice that they. It, I mean, you could be cynical and say that Christopher Plummer decided he didn't want to spend quite so long in, in the chair makeup trailer. Uh, yeah, yeah, but, but um, there's also like even Klingon is an interesting language because it changes based on the kind of reasonably famous actors <laughs> yeah, who are willing it. to speak it. Yeah, 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 exactly. Because Christopher Lloyd made like a mistake in Klingon in, in Star Trek Three. Yeah, exactly. Where there's like this new language, and he was like, "Oh, great Scott, <laughs> <laughs> need to need to do that take again." Um, and the, the director kind of looks at the linguist and says, "Does he need <laughs> to do the take again?" We only have so many days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The linguist immediately kind of knew that the answer was no, and it's like, "No, no, you can, you can." Uh, you know, Klingon, you you can skip prepositions, and actually, it's 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 probably a more appropriate kind of. <laughs> so the language changes like that, but also the the translation of of Hamlet into Klingon changed because of how Christopher Plummer felt. Um, <laughs> to be or not the to Klingon be. sounded. Yeah, yeah, for to be or not to be became to continue or not to continue, because it it just sounded better in Klingon. Um, it was clunky or something. We should we should single out actually Marco Crand because again again Star Trek nerdiness incoming and apologies to the listeners for this. I'm not sorry, uh, but things <laughs> like like the thing about what's remarkable about Crand is like when he was tasked with coming up with the Klingon language, particularly for Star Trek um, three. The process is incredible, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Like the, in in terms of like finding finding the least kind of common permutation of syntax. Yeah. Like, like the um, kind of some sometimes sometimes this is where the the subject and the object is, and sometimes it's in this direction, and very rarely or hardly not at all is it is it, is it in this format, and that's the way Klingon should be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because it should be harsh, abrasive, and it should reflect kind of like the Klingon culture inside. An alien. Yeah, that's exactly. The idea was to make it to not sound like anything. Um, we would be used to hearing with our ears, I guess. But like one of the things that I really like about Okrand as a writer, because as a, sorry, as a linguist, because he also did this with uh, Vulcan dialogue in Star Trek Two. That's right. Um, what he does is he reverse engineers it. It's not just that you mentioned the fact that like Christopher Lloyd fubbed a line and it became the logic of like the Klingon language. Like in Star Trek Two, when he was doing Vulcan. What happened was they filmed the scene between Kirstie Alley and Leonard Nimoy and they were like, they should probably talk in Vulcan. But it's like, yeah, but they already recorded their lines in English. And it's like, okay, Marco Crand, your job is to make an alien sounding language to match their lip movements so we can dub it over in ADR, uh, which is remarkable. But like with Klingon for Star Trek 3, he went back to the motion picture, which has an open... That's right. Yeah, and, and reverse engineered it from that. He's like, okay, well, what are we it's saying? Gobbledygook. We... Yeah, that's exactly. And kind of like made it into a language, which I kind of adore. And like, I love... The movie does this a couple of times with the translation convention. The sequence during Kirk's trial, where like Chang is initially speaking Klingon um, into like his little translator. 
but it then just switches because again it's Christopher Plummer and what's the point in having Christopher Plummer if he's not going to speak English in a Shakespearean kind of way it switches to him just talking English like he normally would through the universe and also Christopher Plummer refused to learn that (laughs) (laughs) I learned a single line of dialogue that's enough you get you get the intro no 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 I'm kidding yeah like that moment when when Kirk's on trial and he goes don't wait for the translation answer it now and he double like if you watch his body language he doubles over like he's like pummeling the words uh it's it's astonishing it's staggering it's so good yeah it's so good and i love as well a an element of that scene is that it's like it's like two men two old men with ear trumpets <laughs> McCoy, you know, yeah. <laughs> try to try to kind of hear what what's going on, and and kind of I know myself, my eyesight's perfect, pretty much, <laughs> but my hearing is going to go, and is is going already, and it's what I have ahead of me, is that 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 I'm not making fun of them for being old, but it, it's <laughs> it's a very kind of a true and 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 sort of um, funny, if you like, the detail. Um, in terms of kind of actually let's talk very briefly about the Klingons because the Klingons are fascinating they're obviously the most iconic Star Trek alien and they're the one who have you know one of the longest histories in the show the Romulans and the Vulcans both predate them the, Ro- the Vulcans obviously first appearing with Spock and the Romulans first appearing in Balance of Terror um, I think eight episodes into the first season of Star Trek depending on which order you watch it Klingons didn't appear until the end of the first season in Errand of Mercy which I've singled out a couple of times and is a fantastic episode of television but what's interesting about the Klingons is they were originally meant to be the Chinese. Um, they were meant to be Chinese communists, which is why they had the Fu Manchu goatees and why their skin was bronzed in the way that it was. Um, the original description of the Klingons from Gene L. Kuhn, and Kuhn is one of my favorite Star Trek writers, but maybe the description hasn't aged well and was ever meant for public, cons- public consumption, but stony-faced Orientals is how he described the Klingons looking. Uh, but what's interesting is over the course of the show... Inscrutable. That's the 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 um, uh, kind of um, uh, racist caricature of 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 the the Asian character in in your in one's first <laughs> um, uh, novel. Yeah. It's kind of shorthand. Yeah. Even even John le Carre, who I mentioned earlier on, or did I? <laughs> you did. Yes. <laughs> um, was that this evening? Uh, yes, that was this. Is evening. <laughs> is, is 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 aware of um, of that being a cliche. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. So like, the, but the Klingons then kind of evolved into they're the Russians here. And one of the more interesting evolutions, I think, that you've seen the Klingons after this, because obviously what happens with the Klingons after the end of the Cold War, when Russia ceases to be a power, when the metaphor of the Cold War no longer relates to the Federation's relationship to them, what happens to the Klingons? And I mean, in The Next Generation Deep Space Nine, you arguably have them do the the kind of post-Soviet Union kind of Russia thing where the Klingons seem to collapse into themselves and they become kind of, you know, strange, decaying culture that maybe isn't as strong as it used to be, has been kind of like Again, subtly influenced by the Federation. I think something like three Klingon chancellors are chosen by the captain of the Enterprise at one time or another. Um, but you have basically what I think is interesting with the Klingons is, and again, it's it's this end of history thing that you see, is when you get to Enterprise. Uh, Enterprise does an episode called Judgment, written by David A. Goodman, um, who is probably best known as a Family Guy writer, whether fairly or otherwise, but he's a big Star Trek fan. He wrote an episode called Judgment, which was a riff on the undiscovered country. But the twist was, in this episode of Star Trek, produced in 2003, that, well, actually, no, the Klingons are no longer an alien other standing in for the Chinese or the Russians. The Klingons are actually us. The Klingons are America. 
Um, that's the point that we reached in this post kind of like Iraq war world or this post 9-11 world. This, again, you point out this militarism that runs through stuff. And I think that like one of the cleverer things was that actually is the future of the United States closer to the Federation as an ideal or is it closer to the Klingons? And one of the interesting trends in it's, modern Star Trek. It's an is, interesting question. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. No, no, but I, I do think like, and again, you see it in Discovery as well. And I know I'm fonder of Discovery than you are, particularly the first season, but Discovery does it as well, where the Klingons are a representation of a certain worldview that was particularly prominent around about 2017 when it was released. Remain Klingon being one of the things they talk about, like how the Federation wants to drag them down in the dirt with, was it Vulcans, Tellarites and filthy Andorians, which I kind of love the filthy Andorians. It's like, okay, with the humans and the Tellarites, that's, they're fine. But the Andorians, ugh. Andorians can feck off back to the Pyrenees. <laughs> yeah, with their antenna. What's, what's that? The great, like, whenever somebody's telling a dirty joke in Star Trek, you never hear the start of it. But the punchline is always, and the Andorian says, that's not my antenna. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what, what, what is it in, 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 in Aliens? Um, oh, uh, doesn't matter as uh, long as Artarian... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Artarian Poontang. Yeah. <laughs> the one you got was male. Doesn't matter as long as Artarian, baby. Um. Yeah. <laughs> Arturian, is it? Arturian, or, apologies, yes. Or, or something, I don't know. Oh. But yes, very quickly then, will we just kind of run through, because like, outside of the, the primary cast, who are, are generally quite good here, like again, a lot of goodwill for the original Star Trek cast, particular shout out to George Takei, who managed to complain his way to commanding the USS Excelsior because himself and Shatner could no longer stand being on the same set as one another. So I, kind of... I love how they try and get across, really, <laughs> <laughs> like over and over again, how that doesn't mean that they're not friends. Yeah. <laughs> um... yeah. Totally buddies. He'd totally run and help him out if Christian Slater needed him to. Um, but yeah. Does Christian Slater have braces in <laughs> I don't know. He shot mostly in silhouette. I was, I was watching with Petrina, and Petrina was like, that's not Christian Slater. What's wrong with his face? <laughs> I was like, I don't know. Is he have braces? Maybe. Um, um, I believe it may be. I think his mother might have been a casting agent on this. I'm not sure. Helen Slater. But I will confirm that with a quick oh, wow. trip to the fact machine. And we're back from the fact machine. And yes, indeed, I believe the casting was handled by his mother, Mary Jo Slater, as well. And Slater was a Star Trek fan and managed to finagle his way uh, into the movie in a small token role. Shot in silhouette. The same, same reason Christopher Walken stays so big, busy. <laughs> Except it's his wife is, is a casting agent. <laughs> I kind of love, well, to be fair, when is... when is No, I'm, I'm kidding. Uh... <laughs> when, when is casting Christopher Walken a bad decision? Um... <laughs> it's never a bad decision. Yeah, yeah. If, if, the mov- if the movie isn't improved by Christopher Walken, then there is no hope. Yeah. For, Chris, for Christopher Walken being in your movie may be a mistake, but for the movie, having Christopher Walken in it is never a mistake. Oh, apologies to all the listeners. Um, I was eating crackers earlier on. Although I guess they would have stopped listening if they, <laughs> yeah. if they felt so strongly. But we will kind of just quick shout out to the rest of the cast because there's David Warner as Gorkin, um, who is really yeah, good here. Yeah, I I, um, you probably know, but I, I, uh, one of my recommendations will, will be a David Warner recommendation. Ooh, because War- Warner is a Star Trek veteran. In fact, he's actually one of the few. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to recommend Star Trek Five, are you? 
No, no, I'm not. Okay. I, I, I'll, 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 uh, I, I was. No, I, um, it's 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 fine. I, I was I was going to re- I was I was going to recommend Chain of Command. Yeah, no, no, I I I kind of guessed that, but he was he carried over from the Final Frontier. Warner had appeared in the Final Frontier as one of the ambassadors on Nimbus Three, uh, which is quite interesting that he he plays basically appears in two Star Trek movies back to back, in two different roles. That's right. There, there's there's a lot of David Warner as well has a great voice. Yeah, he was featured a lot in in kind of like um, a lot of nerdy animated fair like yes the, like freakazoid the, 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 yeah he's raz al ghul as well yes in and, batman um, the series so i don't yeah. know why i went with his appearance as Loeb um on freakazoid before i went with raz al ghul <laughs> <laughs> he's he's also jor-el i think in a, in some version of, of 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 superman um as well and yeah anyway and so. has played i believe the doctor um in audio plays although never on screen um in terms of doctor who as well um, and also, not not a bad looking guy to look at. Like, <laughs> you always have to put like so much makeup on him, yeah. <laughs> or like put him behind a microphone. It's it's more that his voice is great rather than his face is bad. To be fair, um, yeah, yeah. I think he does. He also do some some Doctor Who. I believe he does. He did. He did. He had a he had a small role on screen. I think in Cold War, but he did play the Doctor in audio. Again, mm. in audio, never on screen. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I think, along with Derek Jacoby as well, also played the role in audio, but never on screen. He, Derek Jacoby went on to play the master on screen in terms of trivia and played the role twice again in terms of trivia. But sorry, back to Star Trek trivia. An Iman popping up as Marsha, the shapeshifter, who gives us the, right. the moment of Kirk making out with himself, which is another one of those moments that feels a bit meta-commentary-ish. <laughs> I can't believe I kissed you. Must have been your lifelong ambition. Um that they it, 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 like i guess i like that <laughs> you know <laughs> you could look at that and say like you know they 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 it's gotten very indulgent and campy but you're you're, you're <laughs> i I'm, i for one was 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 on board with it um yeah well, i think it was i think it was it was fun because of shatner's persona because again there's yeah, the, yeah. The, the punch- no, I, it was absolutely fun but the the question is is is, <laughs> yeah. is it too knowing yeah and it, is that the thing that's going to take this from being a truly great movie to being a, a, a movie that's fun for us? Yeah. And everybody else is like, what the hell is what's this? going on? This is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, the, she does have a moment of appropriate smoking. Yes. <laughs> they, I, I often joke, like, I, or I used to joke when I smoked, um, when I'd be out in the cold smoking. Uh, and people would say, "Oh, you must be freezing." I would say, "No, I'm, I'm, I'm gathering heat from <laughs> this cigarette. Like I'm, you know, I, like I'm huddling around it for warmth, <laughs> which is, which is, I guess, what they do in this. They, 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 they have these cigarettes that keep them warm, which they were paid to do by a cigarette company." <laughs> <laughs> Again, it's nice that cigarettes have had their own Star Trek Six moment as well, isn't it? <laughs> um, and also quickly, as again, as a big Star Trek fan, William Morgan Shepard, W.M. Shepard, playing the uh, basically the warden on Ruapente, who you oh, he's so good. <laughs> I love I love his line. It's like since you're about to die anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I've been wanting to talk to somebody. Everybody else here is so boring. I've never really I will t- tell you exactly <laughs> the details of this conspiracy. Yeah. <laughs> and that he like conspicuously like calls it a gulag. Like, yeah. it, it, In- that 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 and 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 has that sort of Russian twang to his 
uh, voice. And of course, it's it's like meant to be the Siberian waste as well, in case you don't yeah. get the metaphor um, for kind of what's going on here. But yeah, even even like, again, Morgan Shepard, one of those uh, Star Trek veterans, he popped up in a couple of episodes of The Next Generation and Voyager as well, and was always kind of a joy to watch as, as well. Passed away a couple of years ago, um, but his son, Mark Shepard, um, is still acting, which is kind of cool. I was going to say, Imam plays a shapeshifter. Yes. Um, and Kirk gets the shift. Ah, I like it. <laughs> won't, won't, be, uh, won't be as amusing for people who aren't familiar yes. with that. Um, <laughs> um, all that pent up frustration. Just for you, Darren. Thank, thank you. Uh, we should note, by the way, as well, that like if you get a chance, watch the VHS copy. Did you watch the VHS version of this or did you watch the uh, theatrical cut? So I would have watched it back in the day, the VHS, yeah. So well, the version that you watched for this, did it contain a sequence in which uh, René Albergonis, uh playing Colonel West, begins to outline a plan to rescue Kirk? Because there's a whole host of small little deleted scenes that are trimmed from the theatrical cut that are restored in the home media version. Oh. So does the president ever entertain a plan to rescue Kirk? No. Okay. No. Pre- president Clarence Boddicker. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. Again, another Star- Smith. another Star Trek veteran and kind of genre fiction kind of veteran as well. What else is he in? <laughs> <laughs> he pops up in Voyager uh, in the two-parter Year of Hell. As, as, oh, fine. Sorry. Um, but yes, Colonel West, who is the um, the assassin at the end, who gets unmasked out of nowhere, he at least has a couple of scenes um, in, the th- in the home video cut as well. And again, another Star Trek connection there. He plays Odo on Deep Space Nine as well, which is, is quite nice. Because it does seem a little bit, when you watch the like theatrical cut, it's a bit, oh, and by the way, the Cleon Spy is secretly Colonel West. And you're like, I don't know who, who Colonel West is. Who is this guy? Why isn't he really a Klingon? What's going on here? Um, why, why this guy? Why this guy is the guy who's going to kill the president? And again, the answer is because we're doing 60s culture and it's the Kennedy assassination. That's what we're going for here. So, of course, it has to be a conspiracy that is perhaps more elaborate than it needs to be. It's a, sorry, it, it, it is a unisex prison. <laughs> I'll say that about Rura Pente. I believe the Gulags were as well. Oh, okay. Or, or some of them. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> so it's not so bad. <laughs> Equal opportunities. <laughs> I like that. Um, yeah, yeah. And I mean, hey, work well and you will be treated well, right? to each according to his ability to work in hitler 1938 (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, all right then i i think we're kind of wrapping up there in terms of star trek 6 unless there's anything else you want to talk about anything that we have i could talk about it forever yes so could i yeah we'll 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 no, I'm going to I'm going I'm I'm going to say no there there was there was potential food waste with the incineration of some cookware um um, with the phaser no no yeah exactly everybody wanted to know who shot that phaser <laughs> <laughs> like clearly they've got younger better versions of themselves doing all the actual work <laughs> all they have to do is run around and ask like who shot that phaser yeah. <laughs> Scotty shouldn't you be actually doing some like the investigative work that I left you to yeah. do um I kind of do. I also like again love Chekhov. Chekhov as a character is such a fantastic character because he's. You mentioned him being like 
Russian, and that's a big deal. But he's also such a weirdo. He's such a delightful little weirdo. Um, like the, the <laughs> when, he, when he tries to play um, Poirot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with Crew and Dax. It's like, uh, <laughs> are you familiar with Russian stories, Cinderella? <laughs> Shoot it, wear it. And then that's like, and the fact that it's Spock. It's not Ahura, it's Spock who does the little je- like gesture, look at her feet, look at his feet. It's a kind of a door. I want, yeah, like the... Kim Cattrall is in this, and, and I think is rather good, but cannot match Leonard Nimoy for his eyebrow acting, and I don't <laughs> blame her. She do, it, it does, like, a, 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 a fairly good job. But, um, yeah, um, I, I guess, as I say, I could go on all evening, but I won't. Um, well, again, that part was originally meant to be Savak from Star Trek 2 and Star Trek 3. Um, but there was some difficulty in getting Robin Curtis back and then the debate over whether or not she should be a traitor. Uh, because they were worried that like the reveal that Savak was secretly a traitor would potentially alienate her or kind of make the, the audience kind of hostile towards her. So they came up with a new character called uh, Valeris, uh, which is, is interesting. And I think, again, I think Cattrall's quite good in the role. But uh, as you point out, nobody can match Nimoy. All right, then. So I think that about wraps it up, unless anything else we're talking about, anything that we haven't discussed already. No, no, no. I'm, 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 I'm happy to move on to recommendations. Perfect. All right. So, Andrew, what would you recommend for listeners who have listened to this special b- b- bonus episode of the 250? Bonus! So, one of Spock's... Ancestors was was a man called Sherlock Holmes, um, who was also imitated in the guise of George Smiley. Um, uh, of um, people might be familiar with him from Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, Gary Oldman, or indeed um, uh, Alec Guinness. Alec Guinness, genuine yes. class. I was going to say Alex for some reason. Um, yeah, and. Well, but, um, but- you know, to you and whenever I think about George Smiley, actually, when I'm reading the books or when I'm when, or if I'm listening to the books, I always think Alec Guinness, um, because he had a kind of a pudgy face for yeah. it, and and um, I know that Gary Oldman uh, played Churchill. <laughs> it was like a a, a a a some sort of a fat prosthetic that he wore. Yes. When when he played George Smiley, he, 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 I wasn't really that convinced that 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 he was the the George Smiley that I'm like familiar with from the books, as good as he was. So I like like to recommend the first book in the Smiley kind of series, which is called For the Dead. It's very short, and it, it is him as Sherlock Holmes solving a seemingly a suicide. Um, but he is beginning to have suspicions that there may be more to it than that. Maybe foul play afoot. Um, <laughs> like the so game. Yeah, I'd, exactly. So, I, so I'd recommend that. Another thing, I, I mentioned um, Gul Madred, David, David Warner, um, in, the, uh, in another two-parter, um, Chain of Command, which I enjoy. Another guest star in that is Ronnie Cox yes. uh, playing Admiral Jellicoe. Ronnie Cox playing a type that was established by the movie Robocop. <laughs> where, where, yeah, Ronnie Cox was used to playing kind of like a vunkler nice um, characters from, and then... Uh, well, from Deliverance what, and what, stuff, yeah. Exactly, yeah. And, and that... that, that um, Robocop kind of established this thing. It's like, oh, he's actually really good as a villain. (laughs) 
because um, you don't kind of um, immediately suspect it, maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'd, I'd, um, in terms of Star Trek stuff, I'd, I'd, I'd recommend that. Cool. Um, and yes, for myself, a um, couple of quick recommendations. They're going to be Star Trek themed because, of course, they are. Um, Star Trek: The Next Generation. Um, just the, the whole thing has been remastered in HD and is available on Netflix around the world or in, in CBS All, All Access if you're in the states. Uh, and it's well worth your time. It looks absolutely gorgeous. You can see the threads on the uniforms that the actors are wearing. It's fantastic. And again, big fan of the show. A huge part of my childhood. And going back and rewatching some of it still holds up remarkably well. In particular, Patrick Stewart is just astonishing. Uh, in the role of Picard. So He's so fantastic. And then also just uh, Deep Space Nine as well. I rewatched Deep Space Nine uh, in lockdown. I finished it a little while ago. It is phenomenal. Uh, it is probably, I know that you and I differ on this in that I know you're not a big fan of Deep Space Nine. I'm not as big a fan. Like I, I've had conversations with like long conversations with people about like our kind of like and dislike for certain characters in, in the next generation. And like, um, where we'll like rave about how cool Garrick is, <laughs> um, or, or, or like express a kind of a fondness for Damar. Yeah. Damar, Damar <laughs> is great. He literally been. He's like he's the guy in the. So good. He's the guy in the background of Gul Dukat's He's a kind fridge. of bear for <laughs> Dukat. Yeah, yeah. And then becomes this kind of great romantic again Shakespearean character um, who has this wonderful fully formed arc. But yeah, Deep Space Nine uh, rewatched it. Phenomenal. Um, it is really, really great and really clever and really it, holds up remarkably well. Did a lot for television too. Well, I mean, it arrived like in, ter- in terms of that kind of um, serialization stuff, isn't it? Yeah, no, but it, it, in in like I'm, I'm I'm sure something like The Sopranos would have been possible anyway. But to 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 take one's time with characters the way it did and have these these these, um, these arcs. Um, that would pay off kind of over years um, was, I don't know, felt very kind of um, different to um, to the, 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 the the way kind of um, the, the next, next generation. generation. Approached it. Well, yeah. where it was more episodic week on week kind of thing. Yeah, not that they didn't do any of that. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, again, it feels like a clear evolution. Watching The Next Generation and watching Deep Space Nine, you see a lot of the young writers who started on The Next Generation coming into their own or kind of like pushing against like the limits of The Next Generation on Deep Space Nine. And it, it's remarkable in that sense. And like, that's that's the thing that I feel, again, at the risk of putting my old man hat on, I feel like, you know, it feels, I feel really sad that for Star Trek, Deep Space Nine feels like an evolutionary dead end instead of like something that kept pushing forward because i think voyager fell back into being kind of the next generation at a time when television was changing i find the funny thing about voyager and maybe it's why it was kind of um a step backwards is that they're they're literally coming home (laughs) rather than going out yes kind of that 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 it kind of undermines what I guess uh, what what it what what the series maybe meant for me, where it's like getting lost in a in a strange in a new world, yeah. strange new worlds, different part of the galaxy, would be just the opportunity <laughs> they were waiting for, you know. Yeah, the, as opposed the, to we the, have to get home as quickly as possible, and yeah, the, which 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 kind of was, um, I guess, strange as a strange kind of instinct for me. 
Yeah, and um, and it's really weird when you watch it because it feels very regressive in terms of like the Kazon are very clearly okay, meant, yeah. are meant to be like Native Americans. They're meant to be like Indians from the Searchers. Are are there like Crips and Blood? Oh, they are that as well. Yes. Yeah. It's it's a very nineties Los Angeles TV show when you watch it in hindsight, and a lot of the uh, like uh, Predator too. Yes, yes, it is very like Predator too. Um, but what I would recommend then as well is the third and fourth seasons of Enterprise. I think the first two seasons of Enterprise are not great they're um, the first season is ambitious and messy and the second season is the point at which i stopped watching star trek live on television but the third and fourth season of enterprise i i really enjoyed i went back to there it's kind of interesting because you mentioned like how so much modern american sci-fi post 9-11 is militaristic um and one of the big things facing star trek post 9-11 was how to do star trek and how to do the utopian ideal of star trek in a world where America was no longer, you know, the sole power or the always going to be the good guy or the hero or the person on top of it all. And I think the third and fourth season of Enterprise don't always do it elegantly, but you get to see Star Trek like week on week figuring out how do you tell Star Trek stories in a world where America looks outside its borders and thinks they hate us. Um, and yeah. How do we say that we want to go out and explore new worlds when, you know, we're still reeling from this trauma that happened and we're trying to make sense of why that happened? And it, it makes a lot of sense even even more so now because the, the, the kind of like it feels like the twilight of American hegemony yeah. where, where um, like you look at the last year and Chinese people have kind of obviously it's difficult because it's all sort of like self-reported and how much is somebody going to say knowing that they could be listened to but some 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 of the sense to get is 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 that it's kind of like we have made a deal where we 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 mightn't have some of the same liberties um that we had but we're looked after yeah and we're prosperous and you look at the rest of the world and how they they manage the pandemic. Yeah. Say, that's some some something that's is kind of very strange about the last year was the extent to which we were led by not the United States. Of America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think like that. That was kind of something. I think one of the again, sorry, we're getting derailed here, but like there's a New York oh, no. there's a New York Times article and video that I found really strangely moving, which is people around the world reacting to news from America and in America in particular and like things like the mass graves in New York because they ran out of space for bodies things like the coolers outside of hospitals because they didn't have room in the mortuaries um, and just kind of looking at those statistics and like reeling and kind of the reaction of people from across the world from places like Indonesia from places like Germany Senegal uh, and going this is like America was the world power. America was the leader. America was the country that was supposed to have this stuff figured out. And it's interesting as well because, like myself, politically, like I, I, I think I, I think I've self-described myself at at some point as 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 an anarchist, <laughs> <laughs> um, and at other points as some sort of like a uh, uh, federalist libertarian or as a liberal or a different kind of a Clint Eastwood fan. Um... <laughs> I am a Clint Eastwood fan, unironically, to be clear. Um. But the 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 
the idea in the last year of the, this this kind of like totalitarianism. <laughs> Strangely but, comforting. But, yeah, but it, like I just kind of bought into it. I was like, okay, these are rules. That is what we must do. You know, the the um, uh, it doesn't matter what I want to do. Yeah. Um. Uh, I must put um, society first, which is a very un-American idea. Yeah, it turns <laughs> you know? out. Yeah, it's, it very yeah, much turns out. Yeah. But it, it, and not not to. And I'm yeah. Sure no. No. That's fair. Disagree that's fair. with yeah. me and that. But yeah, the, the, it's a kind of like. Um, yeah, it's a weird sort of idea about. Um, I guess back, getting back to what you were saying about how the future might not be an American future. Yeah. And how we're 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 living in a um, what some people call like Asia's century, or um, the or China's century. century. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, like I, I think like the third and fourth season of kind of Enterprise deal with that remarkably well. So those are my Star Trek recommendations. All right. So this has been a bonus episode. We've released this midweek. I'm not entirely sure which week we're going to release this. So back at our regularly scheduled time this Saturday coming up, you'll be able to join us for the first of our two Valentine's Day episodes. The wonderful Stacey Grout and the fantastic Luke Dunn will be joining us for a discussion of Wong Kar Wai's In the Mood for Love. We're really looking forward to it. We'll see you then. Take care. Bye. Bye. Perfect. All right. Thanks so much, Darren. No, really enjoyed that.